Zuckos in the east, the house of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, the house of night. May wisdom mature among us, so that we may see everything from within. Welcome from the West, the house of transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so that we might accomplish what must be done. We greet from the South, the house of the eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary beings. We greet from above the house of paradise where the star people and the ancestors gather May their blessings reach us now. We welcome from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war.
So we've got this healing energy going in this wave, and we have a two Lamont today. It's the yellow lunar star. And that star energy, it's, uh, three key words are beautifies, art, and elegance. And it's the lunar tone, which is a, <clears throat> key words are stabilizing, polarity, challenge. So <clears throat> there we go. Those are the energies today, and I have a note here that it is the, today is also the, the yellow lunar star is the Beatles galactic signature. <laughs> so <clears throat> for when they started their band back way back yonder. And <laughs> so we've got a mantra for the day and it is I polarize in order to beautify stabilizing art. I seal the store of elegance with the lunar tone of challenge. I am guided by the power of universal fire. Uh, <clears throat> so that guiding power today is the sun. And um, we've got the occult power today is the red crystal skywalker. So good support working with that skywalker. And the challenge gift for today is the white lunar mirror. And the analog, our, our ally today is the blue monkey. So there you have it. <laughs> and uh, what else? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's take a look at this Lamont energy. The vi- visionary aspect is about working with the illumination of humankind. So we're opening that stargate with this energy and we're embracing these gifts of that journeying, uh, pioneer spirit and having that power to see beyond. So this is a good time to let go of any dissonance or self-doubt as we embrace these energies today and then just moving on to tomorrow, a Saturday. It's a three look. The red electric moon. This is the artist aspect, the look, the moon. So it's about our wise use of our rational mind. It's about accepting spirit's direction. Listen to the moon. What is she telling us? <laughs> when we embrace this, our gifts of that, having that contact with spirit and remembering what we came here to do. So we embrace universal mind as our mind and... Uh, yeah, we practice telepathy. So let's let go of any insensitivity, any attachment to omens or any self-doubt as we embrace these energies tomorrow with that maluk, that moon energy, and that moon is waxy. Um, <clears throat> so we're in a good moon phase. We're doing stuff. And then moving on to Sunday, it's a... Uh, Auk. It's a four Auk, the white self-existing dog. So the dog is an artist aspect, too. So let's work with that unconditional love that that uh, this energy brings and that healing, healing the pain of the past. So we have these gifts of having that contact with our spirit guides and that awareness of our destiny. 
and then awareness of our past lives and our loyalty to humankind and all of that. So let's let go of any fears or any unwise use of anger as we dance with this dog day on Sunday. And then on Monday, it's a 5-2 in the blue overtone monkey. Another artist aspect. It's about balancing work and play and paying attention to clarity of mind. So we also have that wise use of magical artistry that the monkey shows us so well. So we embrace these gifts of that innocence and spontaneity, that ability to play and laugh and enjoy ourselves and others as we let go of any insensitivity or jadedness or any resistance to compassion and let go of mistrust. And then moving on from Monday to Tuesday, the sixth ebb, the yellow rhythmic human. This human glyph is a healing aspect. So we're working with our enlightenment of humankind and activating cosmic consciousness, and we are attuning to spirit as we do so. Well, let's embrace these gifts of being that human servant warrior the gift of abundance that comes with that and that gift of our contact with other dimensions. As we let go of any dependence on the inner mind, let go. We embrace these energies on Monday and then on, I mean on Tuesday, excuse me, that's that human day. And on Wednesday at the 7th end, the red resonance. Separateness. 
as we embrace these energies on Friday. We'll talk about it some more next Friday when we come back, and I'll be home again. (laughs) So there you go. That's the week ahead in the record of days in the Mayan tradition, the Mayan record keepers that we all are. Um, And also, I'm a housekeeper, so I'm going to change my hat, and we're going to talk about the housekeeping how we get it done as we are listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And we're we're actually staying pretty steady. <laughs> we seem to be about $1,000 behind every month or every week. And this week, it's only $943 that we need. And that would catch us up to where we need to be. Um, and... That's a, that's a ways to go, but we can do it, so let's just dig in and see what we can come up with as we, as we uh, reach into our heart space and see what is ours to give. Here's how we make a donation to BBS Radio, uh, our account at BBS Radio, and so we do that by going into our heart space, see what we have to give, then go to bbsradio.com. There on the home page, you will see a schedule for Radio Station 1 and the schedule for Radio Station 2. And we're going to look up our show on the schedule in order to access our account. So we do that by going to our Radio Station 1, look at that schedule for the 8 o'clock hour on Thursday and on Friday, and know that that's central time. So adjust for your time zone. The listing in Central Time at BBS Radio is 8 o'clock on Thursday, a night at the round table with the panel. Just click on that icon that's there, and that will take you directly to our account where you can make a donation in any amount. And then on Fridays, this program, the hard news on Friday nights with Taran Rama at the 8 o'clock hour, Radio Station 1. Click on that icon there, and that takes you to our account. And thank you for taking that action. We're grateful for all the ways that you show up, and this is a wonderful way to show up at this time as we get caught up with what we owe BBS Radio. So thank you for taking that action. Um, And then on Saturday we have Radio Station 2. You'll see listed at the 3.30 hour, The True History of Nisera and Our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. And you will uh, see that icon there, click on it, and that takes you to our account where you can make a donation in there as well. So any of those options, or all three, <laughs> any way you want to do it, let's make it happen. We're grateful. We're grateful, grateful for all of us coming together each week and having a place to do that in a good way. And let our voices be heard on the airwaves. Uh, who, Whoever might be interested, and as you're new and interested, don't hesitate. Take that action and and uh, buy us a coffee, as they say. <laughs> Put a little in. So thank you, thank you, thank you. So we're also assisting Tara and Roman with their needs, and they're all caught up on the bills. Yay. And all they need is living expenses, which is $200. And that'll keep them in gas and food and all the other sundries they need for the week. So here's how we 
make a donation to Tara Rumble, you want to access the PayPal account for the Rainbow Roundtable, you find that by going to rainbowroundtable.net. There on the home page, you'll see if you're on a computer, it's on the bar at the top on the right-hand side, a donate link. And if you're on another device that just has the menu grid, click on that menu grid and you'll see all these options come down about option number 42 <laughs> at the bottom of the list. There's a donate link, so click on that, and that takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And once you're there, you can make a donation in any amount. And as you want to access the friends option, you have to have the email to do that. So this is the email that you need. It's uh, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And then that's how you access that friends option is by putting that in as a gift, that email address. And then that goes as a as a gift. So, <laughs> and there and there should be ways to delineate that. So make sure you know how to do that. And thanks for taking that action. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for all your contributions. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. We're grateful for all that Tara and Roland provide, and I know they work pretty much nonstop. So. Not like they're just sitting around. Let's just give them a little fuel to do it with, and that's what our part. So, thank you all for showing up in that way. And if, as you're sending something, please let Tar and Rama know, or Rama anyway, his email, Koran nine 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 three nine at Comcast dot net, and uh, let them know what you sent when you sent it. And if you need a mailing address, it is as follows. Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D, Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280280, in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. I'll say it again. Post Office Box 280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567, zip code. And there you have it. So 13 thank yous and honey in the heart, long life, no evil. Thank you for taking that action. Thank you for showing up. And 13, yeah. So let's pass this talking stick. Oh, my God. It's full of abundance, I can tell you that. And there's a lot of pumpkin pie and a few pumpkins. And there's butternut too, because butternut pie is really good. Some of them like it. And then there's all kinds of other uh, cornucopias of, of wonderful things to be thankful for. So it's a Thanksgiving basket, and then that Excalibur Resort is truth. It's right there. We're down to business doing what we need to do and what we do best. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes this talking stick with lots of fairies and feathers and and unicorns and dragons and all the little people and the Bigfoot. Greetings. Here we are again, everyone. Things thank are going. Thank you, everyone. Yes, thank you so much. Things are going so fast. They are indeed. Um. 
and on the 23rd, next Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, we will replay our time together from yesterday. So, um, the 16th, Thursday the 16th, yesterday's conversation will be replayed on the 23rd, Thanksgiving Day, Thursday. And so everyone, I know you have all kinds of wonderful plans uh, for Thanksgiving. Some people just go and sit in the forest. Some people will have all kinds of guests at their dinner table. <laughs> and uh, I just remember my younger days. My mother had ten brothers and sisters, or nine brothers and sisters. She made ten. And my father had 14, 13 brothers and sisters. He made 14. So there was big family gatherings on these kinds of holidays with lots of kids running around, too. And littler tables for the littler ones and bigger tables for the bigger ones and all that stuff. Um, wherever we are with that and whatever we're doing, I think we have so much to be thankful for. And I'm thankful for any glimmer of light to shed light on the situation in the Middle East for peace. So we're going to make sure we continue to pray peace in the Middle East. Wouldn't that be something if we got that handled between now and Thanksgiving? Inshallah. Inshallah, for the highest good of all concerned. Um, all of that said, it's, it's, you know, which next uh, time uh, we uh, come together, we'll have one more time, uh, one more Thursday after Thanksgiving. So we will still be in November. The November 30th is a Thursday, Thanksgiving. I mean, the week after, the Thursday after Thanksgiving. And then we'll be in the Christmas really in the Christmas situation of December. Yeah. I don't know what to say about all that. That's that's where we're going to go. Um, the last day of December is a Saturday. So that's New Year's Eve. <laughs> And then we everybody's got to get a new astrology calendar. Mm-hmm. Got to get that, Rama. Mm-hmm. That's got to happen. <laughs> I am calling in all kinds of abundance. And uh, uh, also let's celebrate the nature that we have. Uh, and um, Rama, what you want to tell us about your message for today? Oh, um, I got a message from uh, Natasha, Catherine, and Heidi, and they're up near Lake Bakil, near Siberia, Mongolia, and there have been ship sightings coming out of the lake. 
And this is, of course, a bottomless lake, and there's an entrance to the inner earth at the bottom of Lake Bakil. And local people have reported seeing the ships coming out of the lake, going up into the upper atmosphere, out into space. So, uh, Natasha said that, yeah, she and Catherine and Heidi are going to talk with the local folks and find out what the buzz is. And it, you know, the rumors are that Lord Adama and Lord Anton of the Silver Fleets of the Agartha Network are bringing their folks out to let us know the time is nigh for first contact, full disclosure. Because things are at such a tenuous state of affairs, so to speak, on the planet. So the inner Earth Agartha Network starships are coming into the upper atmosphere. Isn't that kind of a big sign that they're preparing? They're preparing. For the enactment of Nassar law somewhere around here, somewhere. C'est possible. <laughs> and I know that the enactment uh, has to be combined with a declaration of world peace. That's right. So we got something to do here on our list of things to do. All we are saying is give peace a chance. And if we get a chance to sing, even if you go for a walk in the forest and sing to yourself, (laughs) you can sing with the birds and the squirrels. And they all listen. And the deer and the crow. They all listen intently. Do you do you ever sing with them, Rawa? Um, <laughs> I haven't. No. Well, you could try. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, Lord Adama and Lord Anton, their main message is. Uh, prepare the way for world peace. Yes. And the Sara law. All right. Uh, well, yes. Rama has a piece from our sister Aurora Ray. Let's listen to that. Yeah. This is the light, light body activation, unlocking your inner potential. How long is that? I'm six minutes. Okay, here we go. The light body revolution. The process of our evolution involves developing and integrating what we call a light body. Think of it as a part of yourself that needs nurturing, exercise, and expansion to fully awaken. One crucial aspect of this journey is having a clear understanding of who you wish to become in your reality. Your light body operates on the principle that your thoughts have creative power and connect you to the very fabric of creation. It opens pathways to different timelines, granting access to complex scenarios and challenges 
that seem both new and strangely familiar. You are now connected to the vast web of existence, and your task is to make sense of this newfound awareness and apply it to your current life. Remember, there's a higher purpose guiding this transformation. Your mission is to translate this purpose into your physical being and manifest it on Earth. This purpose has the profound effect of reshaping various aspects of reality, all converging in the present moment. To explore the many facets of reality, you must first take a deeper look at your physical body. Think of your light body as the essence of your multidimensional identity, accessible through your desire to unite with your greater self. With it, you can shift your conscious intent from one perspective to another, like changing channels on a television. Your light body holds encoded information, translating messages from other worlds and realities through your physical body to your conscious self. Your task is to notice the subtle cues and synchronicities that guide you. Imagine yourself as a multi-layered being, each layer with its distinct body connected to the others. You are a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual entity, all bound together by a radiant body of light that connects you to an infinite array of light beings. Matter, in its essence, is trapped light. As you build your light body, your molecular structure undergoes a transformation, gradually releasing your attachment to materialism, allowing spiritual understanding to guide your daily life. Through the spirit, you can truly comprehend the changes occurring in our world. As your light body develops, you will witness remarkable changes in your physical form. It will become more vibrant, more beautiful, stronger, and more capable of incredible feats. Your body will evolve into a sophisticated processor of vast amounts of information. To accommodate this transformation, your body must accommodate a higher vibrational frequency. This surge of energy will unlock hidden talents and awaken dormant psychic abilities like clairvoyance, clairaudience, clairaudience, telepathy, and a deep sense of knowing. As the higher vibrational frequency fuses with your body, it creates new pathways that bypass conventional structures, allowing you to communicate and exchange data in previously unimaginable ways. Get ready for a transformative journey, ascending towards a fresh outlook on reality. In the near future, this higher vibrational frequency will impact everyone, regardless of age. It has the potential to rejuvenate your physical body by healing long-held separations. Embracing the idea that thoughts create life sets you free from the constraints of powerlessness. Hold on to your vision and let your light body infuse purpose into everything you do. To prepare for this energy, find a quiet moment. Close your eyes and visualize your body filling with light. Imagine this light cleansing and revitalizing every cell. Ask all parts of your body to work together harmoniously in their ideal forms. When your inner self operates in unity, you will find it easier to collaborate and connect with others outside yourself. Those who are unwell on the inside often struggle to work effectively with the world outside. Take care of your inner mechanisms and envision the reality you desire. As you continue on this remarkable journey of transforming your light body, 
you'll find that your everyday experiences become more vibrant and alive. Your physical body will become healthier, stronger, and more capable. And the way you think and understand the world around you will expand in incredible ways. It's like unlocking hidden superpowers within yourself, allowing you to see and do things you never thought possible. In the profound dimension of this evolution, your consciousness is expanding like a beautiful sunrise, and it's closely intertwined with the growth of your light body. As you become more aware of the deeper connections within the universe, you'll also discover a significant connection with your own inner light. This is an open invitation to explore this newfound awareness, to meditate, reflect, and strengthen the bond between your consciousness and your light body. This journey is not just about personal growth, it's a call to action. It's urging you to embrace your spiritual development and the nurturing of your light body. By sharing your positive energy and insights, you can play a part in making the world a better place for everyone. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray. Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Sorry, everybody. Seems a bit unavoidable. I'll just say, though, that um, we are nearing completion. We can say that safely right now. Mm Mm-hmm. And so let's work with completion energy. As um, Aurora Way was saying through this narration here of her her writing, um, uh, we get to decide who we want to be when we grow up. (laughs) (laughs) When we grow up fully in our light bodies. Is that not the case, Rama? Yes. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I remember what you told Ashtar. <laughs> a starship captain. Yes. And? Um, it's been a long road, and I'm getting there. <laughs> and our light bodies are... Uh, the energies are available for fully integrating integrating our light bodies into our physicality now. Yes. So that's a we can do some four minute meditations on that. Yes. Do more than one a day. That's a, hmm. I would say an inspiring goal. And uh, maybe Rama, what you can do is tell everybody the phone contacts that they can come to the conference call. Um seven two zero seven one six seven three zero one and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay. And um maybe a few more thoughts. We've got about four minutes, Rama, or three and a half. Um, I just know this 
time we are in at this particular moment it is so amazing to behold each day with the frequencies of the sun and what's pouring in because it, it is shifting every bit of matter I see it every day how the animals interact with others and they are letting us know as we let go of the old we can trust each other and there's no ideas of um I'm out to get you you're out to get me that's the old timeline and after Atlantis fell and we had a bit of a nuclear winter things kind of got wonky and um, we're still dealing with the remnants of that and place the violet fire yeah I was just going to say that um There was a time on this planet when the animals didn't eat each other. We didn't eat the animals. We lived in bliss. We received our nourishment. From light. From light. I mean, literally liquid light lakes Mm -hmm. and other forms of liquid light. We knew how to create. So, Rama, did Natasha say anything about what's going on in the Middle East? Did she say anything? No, she didn't talk about that at all. No. Mm. Just, you know, to send more more of the violet flame, the emerald green ray into that Mm -hmm. whole story. Because it is about this evil empire that's going down. Blaze of Violet Fire. And I know that Nasara is a simulcast with the Declaration of World Peace. So let's remember that as we uh, do our journey every day. All right. So I guess we'll take a little break now. And we'll see you on the conference call. And at the top of the next hour, we'll be right back here at BBS Radio Station 2. So see you there at the conference right now. Namaste, everyone.
about the law of this circle and the fact that this universal law is instrumental in determining the various things that are taking place in our lives, both good and bad. Today, the beings of light want to take this teaching to the next level. They are striving to inspire us to be more committed and more disciplined in the way we choose to use our precious gift of life and our creative faculties of thought and feeling. For those of us abiding on earth, the law of the circle is like the law of gravity. Even though we may not understand the laws of physics or comprehend just how gravity works, we are all subject to it just the same. It is immaterial whether or not we believe in gravity. If we jump off of a roof, we are going to fall to the ground. It is just that simple. The law of the circle is like gravity. It does not matter whether or not we believe that every single thought, feeling, word, or action we express goes out into the world on an electromagnetic current of energy like a radio or television wave and then returns to us through our everyday life experiences. But that is exactly what is happening scientifically to the letter with every breath we take. Anything that is manifesting in our life that is less than the wonders of heaven on earth is a human miscreation. These challenging and often painful things are being returned to us through the law of this circle, 
so that we can experience the results of our actions and transmute back into light the precious electronic light substance that we misused at one time or another. The negative things that are occurring in our daily lives were either deliberately or inadvertently created during our earthly sojourn. When we made the free will choice to express our thoughts and feelings in ways that were not based in love. During this cosmic moment, you and I and the rest of humanity are awakening. We are remembering who we are and why we volunteered to be on Earth to assist with the monumental event of Earth's ascension process that we are now experiencing. Daily and hourly, the light of God is increasing on this planet. Humanity is being raised up in energy, vibration, and consciousness by our I am presence, the maximum we can withstand in every 24-hour period. With this divine intervention, each and every one of us now has the ability to reverse the adverse effects of our fall from grace. This means that at long last, the sons and daughters of God are once again destined to co-create heaven on earth. We just need to perceive the bigger picture of how we got into this mess in the first place. (laughs) The first thing we need to remember is how our Father Mother God intended for the law of the circle to work while we were learning to become co-creators. At this point in our evolutionary process, we are so used to dealing with pain and suffering in our individual and collective lives that it is difficult for us to even fathom that there was ever a time when these horrific things didn't exist. Mm. But there was such a time prior to our fall from grace. In the beginning, the law of the circle was always a joyous experience and it functioned as God intended. Moment by moment, our I am presence gratefully received our life force from our Father Mother God and breathed this intelligent light substance through our crown chakra and into our heart flame. Once this intelligent light entered the divinity of our immortal victorious threefold flame, it was stamped with our individual electronic light pattern. This electronic light pattern is unique for every child of God and it is given to us at our inception by our God-parents. This unique pattern is how the universe knows what energy belongs to whom, and it is how the law of the circle is flawlessly accomplished for every son and daughter of God. Once our life force was imprinted with our individual pattern, The atomic and subatomic particles and waves of energy contained within this gift of life were available for us to use as we went about the business of our daily lives, learning to become co-creators with our God-parents. We would observe the patterns of perfection in the causal body of God, and then through our unique ways of thinking and feeling, We would use those patterns and our free will 
to co-create new and previously unknown patterns of perfection. Since we had not created any painful human miscreations yet, we were able to focus our attention exclusively on expanding the borders of heaven on earth as our Father, Mother, God intended. With every thought, feeling, word, or action we expressed, our life force flowed forth from us on an electromagnetic current of energy, very similar to the way radio and television waves pass through the atmosphere. Our current of energy reverberated with whatever frequency of vibration we charged it with, depending on our frame of mind and the way we were feeling at the time. As our current of energy traveled to its destination, it accumulated other energy along the way that was vibrating at the same frequency. Like attracts like. For instance, if we were sending love to someone, our current of love magnetized other currents of love to itself as it traveled along the way. By the time our current of love reached the person we were thinking of, it was vibrating at a much more powerful frequency of love than we originally sent out. Our current of love blessed the person in ways that were in alignment with his or her divine plan. And then this loving expression of our life force began its journey back to us and ultimately to our Father, Mother, God, thus fulfilling the law of the circle. The first phase of our life force's journey is called involution. The involution of our life force begins in the heart of God, then passes through our heart flame and culminates when our life force reaches the furthest point of its destination once we send it forth into the physical world to form through our thoughts and feelings. After this intelligent electronic light substance completes the path of involution, it must then return to our Father Mother God, the source of all that is. The return phase is called evolution. Involution and evolution are the dual activities of life that reflect the law of the circle, the outbreath and the in-breath of God. On the return evolutionary path, our current of love is magnetized back to its identical electronic light pattern, which is pulsating within our heart flame. Once again, on the return journey, our current of love accumulates other frequencies of love along the way. By the time our current of love returns to us, it is greatly magnified over what we originally sent out. As a result of this amplification, it is possible that the positive energy magnetized to our original expression of love gathered enough momentum on its return journey to manifest in our life as a healing or a financial success or a new friendship, or a success in our job, or myriad other seemingly unrelated things. This is the divine potential of all 
of the positive thoughts, words, actions, and feelings we express every day. After our positively qualified, intelligent life force returns to our heart flame, and we tangibly experience whatever blessings were co-created through our expression of love, our I am presence is responsible for returning that energy back to the heart of our Father Mother God. This process completes the law of the circle. When our life force is qualified positively, this process works perfectly. If, however, we charge the intelligent electronic light from our life force with negative thoughts, feelings, words, and actions, everything changes. The important thing the beings of light want us to contemplate this week is the fact that when the intelligent electronic light substance from our gift of life returns to us on its evolutionary path, it can only pass through our heart flame and return to our Father Mother God if it is vibrating with the same or a higher frequency of light than when we originally received it. Love, of course, fulfills that requirement. And so do many other positive things that we might empower with our thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. But how many times every day are we obliviously using our precious gift of intelligent life force to empower things that are not based in love or the pure and perfect frequencies of God's light? Next week's vlog. The company of heaven is going to address that question. God bless you, dear one. Pay attention this week and see if the things you are co-creating every moment with your thoughts and feelings are qualified with enough love and light to easily pass through your heart flame on their journey back to the heart of God. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to this Goddess Lakshmi transmission, inviting in a new age of light. So open body, open mind. And focusing on the cycle of breath. The 
in-breath is the invitation of light from the universe around you 360 degrees into the physical body of bone, blood, cells and DNA. Light. Anywhere you are holding dense energies in your physical body on the out-breath, purge and release, sending them back to the universe, back to the light. Allowing more space for your own soul's light in the physical body. And following that cycle of breath, On the in-breath light into the emotional body, a field of energy that surrounds and penetrates the physical body. Anywhere you are holding other people's emotional energy, energy that doesn't serve you on the out-breath, purge and release, sending it back to the light, back to the horizon, back to the universe. Allowing more space in your emotional body for your own soul's light. On the in-breath, the invitation of light into the mental body. A field of energy that surrounds and penetrates both the emotional and physical bodies. Anywhere you are holding mental energy that does not serve you, that does not belong to you, ideas, belief systems, stories, opinions, judgments. On the outbreath, purge and release, sending them back to the light, back to the universe, allowing more space for your own soul's light in the mental body. And following that cycle of breath, as I call to you now, your teams in spirit of the highest light and resonance, your higher selves from the sixth dimension to the twelfth dimension, all beings helping you, 5D to 12D beings helping you, angels, archangels, ascended beings, guides, star brothers and sisters, star councils, specialist teams in spirit. Come be with you now. Come be with you now. And as you breathe, just open and allow the connection, the click in your energy field. And let's invite Archangels of the Horizontal Plane, beginning in the East with Raphael, Archangel of Air, Archangel of the Mind. The symbol of this angel is a crystal wand. 
and the energy is emerald green fire. As you focus on the wand, calling that fire into your space, holding your space. To the south is Michael, Archangel of the Element of Fire, Archangel of the Will. The symbol is a sword of flaming blue light. And the energy is electric blue fire. As you focus on the sword, inviting that fire into the space to hold your space, hold your space. To the west is Gabriel, Archangel of Water, of the emotions. The symbol is a silver chalice, and the energy is diamond white fire. As you focus on the chalice, inviting that fire into the space to hold your space, to hold your space. To the north is Uriel, Archangel of Earth, of structure of the physical body. The symbol is a golden pentacle. The energy is ruby red fire. As you focus on the pentacle, inviting that fire into your space to hold your space, to hold your space. Four archangels, four energies and open. Let's also invite archangels of the vertical force planes, Metatron and Sandophon. Beginning with Metatron, inviting the archangel of the great central sun to bring the Christ grid down into the crystalline core of our sun. down into the ascending dimension of this earth plane. Down into the structure of the building around you. The walls around you, the floor beneath your feet, the ceiling above your head. And let's call to Sandophon of the crystalline grid of the earth below to bring that grid of light up, diamond white light up to the building, the foundations of the building you're in, grounding the whole structure into the earth. And up to feet, grounding your whole field into the earth. Six archangels, six energies and open. 
And at this powerful moment in time, we are calling upon the goddess Lakshmi to bring to an end the age of darkness or Kali Yuga in our own being and also in the world. We also call upon the goddess Lakshmi to initiate the new age of light or Satyuga in our own being and reality and also in the world. So breathing and opening and let's invite all beings working with the goddess to come be with you now. Angels of gold light, angels from the sun and all other angels working with this goddess, this divine feminine energy. To create a bubble or sphere of light around you of gold light. of radiant, intense gold light that begins to shift your vibration up. Lifting you up into the higher dimensions above the earth. up through the sun, the stargate of the sun, which is a gateway to higher dimensions. Allowing the bubble of light or the sphere of light to take you up into the higher dimensions. And we're going to the temple of Lakshmi, a temple of light. Allowing yourself to slowly begin to appear in that space, allowing the temple of light to arise up all around you. A beautiful temple that may look Indian in design. Around the temple are beautiful flowers, pink and white flowers. In the center of the temple is a large pool with beautiful pink and white lotus flowers. There are gold and white drapes hanging around the pillars of the temple. There are also furnishings of many colors, including gold white. Around the space, there are many burning, large candles. There are also many large golden incense burners around the temple. And the scent of amber, frankincense and sandalwood is in the air. 
just opening your inner senses, landing in this temple, perhaps reaching out and touching something. The temple may appear the way I've described it or slightly different or very different. Just trust your impressions. Breathing and centering yourself in this space of light. And a large golden orb begins to appear in the temple, several feet high. This orb floats across the pool towards you. As it comes closer, you can see in the golden orb, there is a beautiful dark-haired woman radiating this beautiful golden light. She is seated on a golden throne. Around her are many lotus flowers. She seems to float rather than walk towards you. You can feel the intensity of her radiance as she comes closer. Begin to feel her radiance surrounding you expanding your sense of well-being, expanding your connection to this goddess. Goddess Lakshmi shows you a vision of how she appears to her devotees. She manifests before you as having four arms. In each, she holds an energetic gift for humanity. These gifts are Dharma or right living purpose or soul mission. Arthur, which is abundance in all of its forms. Karma, which is your soul's true desire, a release from fear, creative enjoyment and emotional fulfillment. And moksha, which is self-knowledge and liberation, which comes from connection with the divine self, your divine self. Feel these four energies in front of you. 
All of these gifts are necessary to live a balanced life. The spiritual support of your divine self and your soul purpose balances a life of abundance and emotional fulfillment. We are at the end of one age and the dawning of another. Send now a telepathic prayer or message requesting the goddess Lakshmi bring to an end the age of darkness on the earth. To neutralize and destroy all energies associated with Kali Yuga any dense blocking or perhaps even evil energies blocking the manifestation of these in your being a reality multidimensionally shifting you up in vibration away from those dense energies. Feeling the light of the goddess beginning to intensify, burning around you and within you. reaching down to the very foundations of your being, the bones, blood, cells, and DNA. Allowing whatever needs to be destroyed within you to be destroyed multidimensionally. Destroying any old karmic programming in your energy fields and in the Akashic records that needs now to be destroyed to release this old age. Neutralizing the ability of any lower dense energies of the outgoing age to touch you. destroying and removing all obstacles in your life. Removing all obstacles to your soul mission and purpose. To your abundance in all of its forms. To knowing your heart's true desire. To self-knowledge and liberation.
opening the way forward into a 5D reality. And just breathe and open, allowing this burning and clearing of any blocks in your being multidimensionally. sending a telepathic prayer now requesting the goddess Lakshmi initiate the new age of light or Satyuga within the earth itself initiating this new age of light in your being and reality multidimensionally feeling a shift in the light around you and within you. intensifying and brightening in a different way from the inside out. Feeling the light of the goddess, this golden brightness increasing. In this light, the goddess offers you the knowledge of Dharma or your soul's purpose. Allowing this golden energy to activate within you multidimensionally. The goddess offers you the energy of true abundance in all of its forms. Allowing the golden energy of this gift to activate within you multidimensionally. The goddess offers you the gift of love and emotional fulfillment. Allowing this golden energy to activate within you multidimensionally. 
The goddess offers you the energy of true knowledge, wisdom and liberation. Allowing this golden energy to activate within you multidimensionally. these four energies, these four gifts to begin to amplify within you. Amplifying your ability to live happily, wisely, lovingly, abundantly and freely on the earth. assisting you with divine light to move more gracefully forward into 5D. Just breathe and open, allowing this transmission within you. Allowing this transmission to intensify, to begin to radiate through you and out into the world. So that you can share this gift of light with all those in the world who are open to receive it. Sending ripples of light out through your field to all those in your reality, to all those in the world who are open to receive it.
and angels of gold light, angels from the sun, all beings and angels working with the goddess to begin to help you amplify this transmission through your energy fields.
And the goddess gives you one final blessing, one final gift. Just be open to receive this one extra blessing, one extra gift. she places it in your heart, perhaps in your third eye or belly, allowing a gift to be placed in your field. gives a little nod of her head and begins to move back into a golden orb of light. Moving away from your field across the pool in the center of the temple. And then leaving the temple. Angels of gold light, angels from the sun, all beings working with the goddess, begin to build that great sphere or bubble of light around you again.
that begins to lift you from the temple of Lakshmi. Bringing you back through the dimensions. through the stargate of our sun back to the space you're in angels to step back allowing the transmission to continue through you to whatever level you can allow and breathing and opening feeling your body with your breath Thanking all beings assisting in this transmission, thanking the goddess. All beings working with the goddess. Angels of light, angels from the sun. All archangels of the horizontal plane and vertical force planes. allowing them to step back and thanking also your teams in spirit of the highest light and resonance allowing them to step back
this transmission is offered to you, as always, with love and blessings. Love and blessings. We are all servants of peace. Love and blessings, love and blessings. I like the way that Stephen says that every night. Greetings, Mother. In the light of the most radiant one, in the office of the Christ, and only in the office of the Christ, we invoke the loving energies of Saint Germain and violet flame. We ask at this time for that inner knowing, that inner gift of awareness to expand, to stretch, to embrace more love, to be able to receive more truth, more inner peace, to expect the unexpected in these moments, to embrace that which must be held accountable, and to to bring a higher sense of 
justice seasoned with divine mercy and compassion to this world in all things. Greetings, Mother. Greetings, children of rock. Greetings, Father. Greetings. Understanding, understanding. Yes. Overstanding. Of it in this moment of now is like what we're hearing. The energies that are pouring in from the sun, from the other folks, we call them folks, the planetary bodies that interact with this awesome place called Gaia Vaiwamis. There are so many adventures yet to be sought. This is what has been called a garden we have barely touched the surface of what can be 
everything that's unfolding is moving us into the higher wisdom how to bring this planet back from this so-called story of extinction to the ascension with the planet, don't you think, Mother? That would be a most logical choice. Oh, my gosh. Logic hasn't seemed to be popular with the certain party we know. Uh, <laughs> yes. It might seem to fit the crazy logic of an extraordinary moment. I mean, at midnight tonight, we were supposed to have the government shut down, and our our uh, speaker uh, implemented something that's going to take us through the 16th of January mother it's I don't know kicking the can down the road exactly have to eliminate what is known as this fiasco yeah, well, there's no interest in governing in this particular party, it seems. As there is no interest in governing, there's no place for these life forms to be there. So... Now what? What comes next is this great rectification, purification, as it has been spoken of in the Hopi prophecy, the age of the sick son. Quasicado and all the folks are here. It's this cosmic story about love as 
we can love our so-called enemies enough to have a change of heart. Miracles could come about. Don't doubt for one iota the power of magic in this realm. It is the nature of what's unfolding. We speak of the magic of this planet herself, himself. There are what we could call an all-knowingness within the consciousness of this planet that we still are yet to become aware of. Gaia and Vaiwamas. Yes. Want to say a little more about them? It is the symbiotic relationship of when you take on the physical form of a planetary body, it, it is a office, like the office of the Christ. Mm-hmm. And these missions last thousands, millions of years. It is like Lord Maitreya, the Cosmic Christ, that is an office. What we speak of is the spiritual government, so to speak, that takes care of this local sun system, galaxy, numbers of galaxies, universes, is all contained within the Urantia book. It is a bit of a read, <laughs> yes. to put it mildly. Yes. Yeah. All of these beings we speak of are actively interplaying, interacting with all of us as we raise it up even higher. I remember about the Lananendic sons and daughters. Yes, these are way showers. Builders of form, as you take thought form, energy, manifest it into earthy, earthy stuff. Yeah, Leninendic stuff. Yes. Yeah. Builder of new form, the new earth. Yes. Yes. We are all 
participating in this, raising it up in the night work, in our day work, with the energies pouring in from the sun, all of these goddesses, angels, masters that are spoken of at this time. As we keep saying, this is the biggest show in the galaxy right here, right now. And how we wake up to letting go of the old matrix, old concepts of gods, goddesses that were not in the interests of ascension. We speak of our wayward children who are on their way out. They are in very much their last moments. That's why they keep feeding the beast called war. It gives them food, loose the fear, keep it constantly going. I don't think they're succeeding. No, the oh. light pouring in is making a difference. Acts. I'm just concerned about the Middle East. That's still loose. It is. It's an ancient story. You yeah, know. how are those two system-oriented uh, uh, mindsets, how does that uh, find a compromise, you know, at the table? <sighs> when you have a civilization where there are controllers rather than folks that want to share speaking of the present day moment this word fascism oh. ideas of control, separation. There is this so-called concept. Folks need a strong father figure. Ha! The patriarchy got us here. The goddess is here. She takes no prisoners. 
it is about the end of this time. Sat Yuga, it is at hand. The old patriarchy is our business. Our children will deal with them as such. Mm-hmm. In the next little while, there's gonna be some stuff that rolls out, gonna raise the hair on everyone's head mm. about how deep. The matrix, the rabbit hole goes. I have lost the light as one. Yet, in this moment, it is imperative that we meditate every day and send more love to these situations on the planet. Yes, Middle East is a big deal. It is also about the revealing of our children and the technologies that were brought here that are the keys to immortality. It is about the gold dust, monoatomic gold, and the third eye, the crown. We can make it ourselves. This is such a wonderful device, if you want to call it that, called the body. Oh, gosh. Uh, Device, okay, well. (laughs) It is about merging with the consciousness of the surroundings, the environment, as we tune into all the five elements and the various folks that are here, from the tiniest pixies to these archangels, there is so much magic. And beauty, love, and it just is quite a challenge to get out of that consciousness of the wall, just another brick in the wall as this 
song goes. The time is now. All the folks are here. We have the power to change this. All it takes is love. That's simple. And it's unfolding as we speak. Gotta look for the golden light pouring in like the sun each day. Let go of the old war-torn ideas of separation. As we do it within ourselves, it makes a difference across the universe. Change your thoughts, change your reality. It's that simple. True. Yes. Don't need any drugs. Don't need any other substances than this. Right here, Adam Cadmon. <laughs> I mean, I just remember way back in the early 80s, I think it was when it really got you know, Reagan got in and the drugs just went, he made it a deal. It was to keep the perpetual motion machine called fear going. And the well, ideas. The, 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 the intensity and the increase in the way that uh, policing was being done was becoming quite alarming. These ideas of containing folks through the use of violence and death only serves to create more samsara. We're done with the story of infinite suffering. And that's why Nuff said, gotta take our children home. We do, Mother. Are, are we? Um, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how to say this without asking the when word. We would just say, that as the events that are unfolding right now that correlate with the shift of the ages, it is about the return of the sixth sun and Quetzalcoatl and peace across the planet. We have to, we have been asked, so to speak, by 
spiritual harky to collect our children and be on our way to Dracos. And so it is. How we can best describe that is keep looking up, you'll see. Radiates in the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayot. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayot. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayot. Eliyahu, Eliyahu, Eliyahu. Yod, hey, Bod, hey. Yava Adonai Basu Varagas Namaste Mother Namaste Ah oh, I know we're gonna have some good musical uh events coming up here, I know. And uh Yes. Rachel Meadows was a guest on Steve Colbert this week. I think it was Tuesday. She was pretty good, so I thought we might share a little bit of that. We used to do a lot more of this stuff with Steve Colbert back now. Where looks like we might get into it some more again. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Rama. Where were you? Mm. Um, Solar Tribunal on Saturn. Uh oh. And uh, listening to one of the commanders talk about the upcoming trials on Draco's. You mean with Mr. Drumpy? With the 500,000 who are going to be getting their just desserts. Yeah, it's not going to be what they think. It's going to be an education, a reintegration. It is about reintegrating into cosmic law. Where mm-hmm. long ago things went awry, has started in Orion, and comes full circle back to Orion. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the same souls doing it over and over again, isn't it? Yeah. I um, know repetition's the mother of wisdom, but you can overdo anything, right? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> It, it is in good hands. Pause. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> I would just say, what is unfolding is so wonderful. I have no words, and it's just about the gold dust. Yeah, this is in. not going to be about more suffering and pain and punishment. It's going to no. be about who we are. Yeah. 
I mean, we've got to do something to redirect the younger ones. I mean, they're already telling us what's up in the zoo. Yes. Yeah. The the all the infrastructure has to go through a three hundred and sixty degree. When we live renewal. in structures that that suck our energy dry instead of spherical structures. Yeah, where is Uncle Ed? Is he still around? Oh, I'm sure he will show up. Yeah, because he's Enoch, I think. I remember that. It's been a very long time. It is. Not quite sure how we relocate a Mm. being like that. Call it in, huh? Yeah. Yeah, the keys of Enoch are... They, uh... You can open the book any page and you can find something that's pertinent to the moment. The moment right now is, I guess it's time for Amy, isn't it? Yeah. On there, over there. Oh, not on there. No. Mm. <laughs> yes. Mm. Any other messages when you were out there? Just that. Just that the more love we can pour into the Middle East, the better. Stop all the hatred. Yeah. Here we go. All right, so. Blaze of Violet Fire. Blaze of Violet Fire, and here comes Amy, everyone. is democracy now. This now is urgently needed if we want to save whatever is left of our humanity. In fact, it is a long overdue. As the United Nations calls again for a ceasefire in Gaza, Palestinian health officials are warning thousands of women, children, and sick people could soon die as Israel continues its bombardment of Gaza. We'll get the latest. We'll also look at how the police in the United States are cracking down on protests calling for a ceasefire. where police attack peaceful protesters with tear gas, pepper balls, and flashbang grenades Monday as hundreds rallied against the construction of a massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City. Well, they're throwing tear gas into the crowd. Um, they're throwing musicians. Yeah, that's tear gas. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
Israel's unceasing bombardment of the Gaza Strip has entered its seventh week with fresh attacks on residential buildings in the Jabalia refugee camp that killed at least 18 people. On Thursday, Gaza's main telecommunications companies went out of service due to a lack of fuel for generators, plunging most of the besieged territory into another communications blackout. Israeli troops occupied the Al-Shifa hospital for a third straight day, where some 7,000 trapped medical workers and patients face a worsening humanitarian crisis. An Al-Shifa doctor said 43 out of 63 intensive care patients who are on ventilators have now died after supplies of oxygen and fuel ran out. A large number, they say, of premature babies have also died due to Israel's siege on the hospital. On Thursday, Israeli and Egyptian authorities allowed a handful of wounded Palestinians through the Rafah border crossing for treatment in Egypt. This is Ahmed Mazen Abu Shama, a Palestinian boy whose leg was amputated after he survived an Israeli missile strike on his family's home. People are torn into pieces, a head on one side and a leg on the other side. Entire buildings in one block are demolished by bombings. The Israeli pilot of the plane doesn't know that there are people in these buildings. They want Hamas. What do the people have to do with this? Innocent children. What do they have to do with this to be bombarded? Doesn't the pilot know that they are children? On Thursday, the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza reported it had been forced to halt services, leaving dozens of patients who urgently need surgery untreated in a reception area. This comes after Israel bombed the Jordanian field hospital in Gaza and attacked Jordan's government condemned as a war crime. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, says it may soon be forced to suspend all humanitarian operations in Gaza due to lack of fuel. UNRWA's chief said Thursday, quote, I do believe there's a deliberate attempt to strangle our operation. An Israeli drone strike on the occupied West Bank overnight killed three Palestinians and injured 14 others. The bombing came as part of a major raid on Jenin and surrounding communities by Israeli soldiers who used armored bulldozers to destroy streets and surrounded four medical sites, including the Ibn Sina Hospital. Dozens of Palestinians were arrested. Since October 7th, Israeli forces have killed more than 200 Palestinians in the West Bank. The head of U.S. forces in the Middle East is in Israel today for talks with senior Israeli officials. Axios reports General Michael Eric Carilla, the commander of U.S. Central Command, is meeting Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and top General Herzi Halevi to discuss Israel's assault on Gaza and fighting along Israel's border with Lebanon. On Thursday, Israel's military shelled villages in southern Lebanon and launched drone strikes after Hezbollah fighters fired anti-tank missiles across the border. It was some of the heaviest cross-border violence since fighting erupted in October. Israeli airstrikes hit several targets around Damascus early on Friday. This follows a series of Israeli strikes across Syria, including attacks that took Damascus and Aleppo airports out of service last month, killing two civilian workers. In California, hundreds of protesters shut down all westbound lanes of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge for several hours Thursday morning demanding President Biden call for an immediate ceasefire and an end to U.S. military aid to Israel. Police arrested 81 people. The protest came as President Biden met with world leaders in San Francisco at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, or APEC. 
In Boston, Massachusetts, Jewish peace activists led a sit-in protest Thursday that shut down traffic on the Boston University Bridge. In a social media post, the group If Not Now Boston apologized to anyone stuck in traffic but added, quote, We have tried everything else. We have called, we have marched, we have sung, we have prayed, we have written letters and visited offices. Yet politicians like President Biden and Senator Elizabeth Warren continue to stonewall. And Israel continues to slaughter innocent Gazans by the thousands, unquote. We'll have more on the protests against Israel's assault on Gaza after headlines when we speak with, if not now, spokesperson Eva Bugwart. Democratic Congress member Becca Bayland of Vermont called Thursday for a lasting bilateral ceasefire in Gaza. Bayland is the first Jewish American Congress member to call for a ceasefire. In a commentary published Thursday, she wrote, quote, like me, there are thousands of American Jews that share a deep emotional connection to Israel because of what it meant for the survival of the Jewish people in the face of extermination. This same history also drives so many of us to fight for the protection of Palestinian lives, she wrote. Meanwhile, more than 300 delegates to the 2016 and 2020 Democratic National Convention who backed Bernie Sanders for president called on the Vermont senator to introduce a resolution for a ceasefire in Gaza. Sanders has so far rejected a ceasefire and has called only for short pauses to the fighting. Meanwhile, the Los Angeles Times has become the first major U.S. newspaper to call for a ceasefire. On Thursday, the paper's editorial board wrote, quote, it's become impossible to distinguish between Israel's decidedly non-surgical operation against Hamas militants in Gaza and the indiscriminate killing of Palestinian civilians. When so-called humanitarian pauses in the bombardment and ground operations are too brief to realistically permit innocents to flee, or when there's no place for non-combatants to go that is not also in the line of fire, such pauses are so deficient as to be meaningless, the Los Angeles Times editorial board wrote. In Russia, artist Sasha Skochelenko was found guilty Thursday of spreading so-called false information about the Russian military and sentenced to seven years in prison for replacing supermarket price tags with anti-war messages. The labels featured messages like the Russian army bombed an art school in Mariupol. Around 400 people were hiding inside, it said. Skochelenko was convicted under new wartime legislation that criminalizes any anti-war messaging or activism. In her closing statement after her year and a half trial, Skochelenko said, quote, how little faith does our prosecutor have in our state and society if he thinks that our statehood and public security can be ruined by five small pieces of paper, she said. This is opposition politician Boris Vishnevsky. This verdict is unfair. There is no guilt because Skochilenko is not guilty of anything. I will not even speak about humanity here or about equality before the law because sometimes people receive fewer years in jail for murder than for five price tags in the shop. It's not justice, it's an execution. In other news from Russia, a former police officer sentenced to 20 years in prison for the 2006 contract killing of Russian journalist Anna Polakovskaya has been pardoned after a military tour in Ukraine. 
Politkovskaya was best known for reporting Russian abuses in Chechnya, often writing for the now-banned Novaya Gazeta. Another journalist has been killed in Mexico. Ismael Villagomez was fatally shot in Ciudad Juarez Thursday while working his second job as a driver. He was a photographer for the newspaper El Heraldo de Juarez, who had worked in media for nearly 20 years. At least three people were arrested in connection with his death. His colleagues are demanding justice. Ismael was a good and honest person. He was a good co-worker whose life was taken away in this way. We don't want his case to remain unsolved, as has happened with the deaths of other journalists. If the cause was something other than his work in journalism, we want this to be clarified by authorities. And if this is related to his journalistic activity, we want authorities to investigate this even further. The Mexican editorial organization, Ismael's family, and the journalistic community demand clarification of the facts. At least four other journalists have been killed this year in Mexico, one of the most dangerous countries for media workers in the world outside a war zone. Violence has skyrocketed in Mexico following the enforcement of the U.S.-backed war on drugs. Over 100 immigrants held at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, have started a hunger strike protesting indefinite detention and other inhumane and dangerous conditions. They're denouncing Immigration and Customs Enforcement for failing to properly handle and resolve immigration cases. The group La Resistencia says at least 25 of the hunger strikers have been placed in isolation. Northwest is run by the for-profit prison corporation Geo Group. In Kentucky, a judge declared a mistrial in the federal civil rights trial of the ex-Louisville police officer who fired his gun during the deadly 2020 raid on Breonna Taylor's home. The jury deadlocked over whether to convict Brad Hankinson, who was charged with using excessive force and violating the rights of 26-year-old Breonna Taylor, her partner, and Taylor's next-door neighbors, where some of the officer's stray bullets ended up. Hankinson faced a maximum sentence of life in prison. He was acquitted last year on three state counts of endangering Taylor's neighbors. Federal prosecutors will now have to decide whether to hold a retrial. A federal jury in California has found a right-wing conspiracy theorist guilty of attempted kidnapping and assault charges after he invaded the San Francisco home of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last year and attacked her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer. Ahead of the attack, 43-year-old David DePape shared QAnon conspiracy theories and false claims about the 2020 election and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. He faces up to 50 years in prison at a future sentencing hearing. Embattled New York Congress member and serial liar George Santos said Thursday he won't seek re-election after the House Ethics Committee found substantial evidence the freshman Republican committed numerous felony crimes. In their report, House ethics investigators found Santos, quote, sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his House candidacy for his own personal financial profit. He blatantly stole from his campaign. He deceived donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were in fact payments for his personal benefit, unquote. United Auto Workers members have approved new contracts with the big three automakers. Among other things, union members will see their pay increase by 25 percent of the course of the deal. Two thirds of Ford workers vote in favor of the deal, while only about 55 percent of workers at General Motors agreed to ratify their contract. 
Stellantis appears set to approve the deal at similar margins to Ford. Some more senior employees have objected to the deal, saying pay increases should be higher. Others have expressed disappointment. Pension benefits weren't expanded to employees hired after 2007. In related news, Stellantis has offered buyouts to half of its non-unionized U.S. staff as part of a cost-cutting move. And thousands of Starbucks workers held a one-day strike Thursday on Red Cup Day, one of Starbucks' busiest days of the year. Workers say frequent promotional events and giveaways like yesterday's creates extra stress and unmanageable workloads. Organizers say Thursday's walkout was the largest in the coffee chain's history. A historic union drive has swept over Starbucks stores nationwide in the past two years. Over 360 locations are now unionized. This is Edwin Palmasolis, a Starbucks worker in New York. We want to make sure that we have a better um, pay, uh, staffing scheduling, and we have the right amount of hours to work because they've been improperly staffing us. Uh, and sometimes it just makes it harder for us to work. You know, sometimes we feel like we work for two people instead of one, um, and we're just tired. We're just really tired of overworking ourselves. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's facing increasing pressure to call for a ceasefire in Gaza, but instead the White House is rushing more arms to Israel. Bloomberg is reporting the U.S. has quietly sent Israel more laser-guided missiles for Apache gunships, as well as new army vehicles, bunker buster munitions, and more ammunition. On Wednesday, the United States abstained from a United Nations Security Council vote in support of extended humanitarian pauses in Gaza. Meanwhile, protests are continuing across the United States calling for a ceasefire. In California, police arrested at least 81 protesters after they blocked traffic on the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge for several hours. In Boston, protesters shut down the Boston University Bridge. Many of the protests calling for a ceasefire have been organized in part by two Jewish organizations, If Not Now and Jewish Voice for Peace. On Wednesday, the groups helped organize a protest at the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in Washington, D.C., where House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries and other lawmakers were gathered. U.S. Capitol Police violently moved in on the protesters as they held hands to block the entrance to the DNC. Police described the protests as, quote, not peaceful and claimed that protesters pepper sprayed officers. But images from the protest shows it was officers who deployed pepper spray and that officers used force to remove the demonstrators. This is Eva Borgward, national spokesperson for If Not Now, speaking during the police action. say 90 people were injured outside the DNC. Capitol Police say six of their officers sustained injuries. One person was arrested. One lawmaker who was inside the DNC, California Congress member Brad Sherman, took to social media to describe the demonstrators as, quote, pro-terrorist, anti-Israel protesters. 
On Thursday, President Biden called into a DNC meeting to express his appreciation for how law enforcement handled the protest. We're joined right now by that person you just heard, Eva Bargward, national spokesperson for If Not Now. Thanks so much for joining us from D.C., Eva. Um, if you can start off by calling for, uh, by explaining why you focused on the DNC and then describe what happened and respond to Congress member Sherman saying you were pro-terrorist. Um, well, Amy, thank you so much for having me. And yes, the focus on the DNC was because, as we know, the majority of Americans and certainly the majority of Democrats want a ceasefire. And our lawmakers are not listening to the thousands of calls um, and constituent meetings that uh, we've been trying to, ways that we've been trying to reach them over the past month. And so this was, like many protests across the country, an act of nonviolent civil disobedience. Um, the goal was to assemble peacefully, call attention to the urgent situation in Gaza, and ask for Democratic leadership to act and call for a ceasefire now, a release of the hostages, a hostage exchange, and a de-escalation, and to address the root causes of this violence, decades of occupation, apartheid, and siege. And unfortunately, police chose to escalate, and with no um, verbal warnings or communication with police liaisons who were trying to speak with them, um, they started shoving protesters down the stairs and shoving protesters um, back with their bicycles and trampling on the 11,000 tea lights that protesters had brought to uh, represent the Palestinians who have already been killed in Gaza. And as you mentioned, uh, Democratic lawmakers, including Congressman Brad Sherman, have said that the the protest these protesters are pro Hamas. Uh, Speaker Mike Johnson said that this was an anti-Semitic protest, which is frankly absurd because uh, for many reasons, but primarily, so many of the protesters are not only Jews, but who have loved ones who are who were either murdered by Hamas on October 7th, um, or Jews and Palestinians who have loved ones either in Gaza or who know people in Gaza who have lost dozens of members of their families over the past month. And so to, to, to say that these, again, many of them personally grieving protesters are pro-terrorist is absurd. Let, um, and it, let's be clear that police escalated this protest. Rather than characterize what Congressmember Brad Sherman said, as I did at the beginning, let's hear what he said on CNN Wednesday night. There are over 200,000 pro-Israel demonstrators with a permit, entirely peaceful. And here you have a demonstration less than one thousandth as large that's also getting publicity. And it's getting publicity because uh, the, their willingness to attack police as they did with pepper spray is a force multiplier. So he's contrasting the protest you had in front of the DNC with the pro-Israel march uh, that took place a few days ago. Your response to what he's saying. Also, I know a number of reporters outside were scratching their heads uh, when he talked about pro-terrorist protesters. Um, yes, thanks, Amy. And yes, his his words do speak for themselves. Um, I mean, first of all, let's also be clear that there have been hundreds of thousands of um, uh, nonviolent march, hundreds of thousands of peace activists, um, Palestinian, Jewish, multiracial, multi faith 
rising up across the US and millions around the world. Um, and so to contrast uh, Wednesday night's demonstration with the um, only with the Tuesday demonstration, um, uh, the pro-Israel march at the Capitol um, is telling um, because it's it's impossible for politicians like Brad Sherman who are refusing to call for a ceasefire to acknowledge the massive um, peaceful uprising that is happening around the world in support of the people of Gaza because the public, um, the, the international community uh, sees Palestinian lives and Israeli lives as equal. Eva, um, on Thursday, yesterday, um, Vermont's sole sen- uh, Vermont Congress member, Becca Bailent, became the first Jewish Congress member to call for a ceasefire. That's very interesting because the one of the senators of Vermont, uh, Bernie Sanders, um, has not called for a ceasefire. Um, in fact, if not now, um, protesters have been arrested in his office requesting that he call for a ceasefire. Your response to both Bailent and Sanders? Um, yes, well, and I was also at that protest um, uh, at Senator Sanders' office um, earlier this month. And um, I think in particular for Jewish lawmakers, as a Jewish movement, as the, as the Jewish movements that have been protesting for ceasefire, we are doing this for um, the for safety and freedom for Palestinians who are under siege, and also because we are terrified of uh, for our loved ones in Israel and in the entire region if this escalates into a broader regional war. Um, and our disappointment in Senator Sanders so far refraining from calling for a ceasefire is that um, he has made his legacy as an anti-war champion. And um, and so we are extremely grateful to um, uh, Congresswoman Bayland for speaking out from a Jewish perspective for ceasefire, because we feel that our Jewish values uh, and our safety as Jews um, is extremely, extremely contingent on ending this horrific violence and calling for a ceasefire now. And finally, uh, Eva, you were an organizer for President Biden during his 2020 campaign. If you can talk about your response to his position now and what this means um, and what you feel Biden's supporters then are feeling today. Um, Yes, so like you mentioned, I worked for President Biden in Arizona uh, in the 2020 election. Let's be clear, I am terrified of Donald Trump and the white supremacist anti-Semitic movement that's behind him. And I I feel immense stake in um, the Democratic Party uh, winning in, uh, in November 2024. And frankly, again, I am deeply uh, um, terrified and angry at... Um, Democratic leadership for ignoring the calls from the majority of their base for a ceasefire, a hostage exchange, and a de-escalation, um, and uh, 
creating a lack of faith in the Democratic Party that I am very concerned will hurt Democrats' chances in November. And I encourage them um, with the fullest, fullest emphasis possible to reverse course now. Um, we, are, we have seen so far that for, well, for some Democrats, 1,400 Israeli deaths and over 4,000 um, Palestinian deaths were enough. Um, now, for other Democrats, 11,000 Palestinians in Gaza killed are not enough for them to call for ceasefire, which is how we know this horrific violence will end and move toward a political solution um, in the region. And so we are waiting to see how many Palestinian lives our Democratic politicians need um, in order to call for ceasefire. And every day, every hour that they wait has I fear implications for what will happen in November. Finally, I wanted to ask about the powerful lobby group APAC, that's the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, stepping up its um, support for primary challengers who, to lawmakers um, who voice support for a ceasefire. Slate magazine reports APAC is expected to spend somewhere around $100 million in Democratic primaries backing opponents of House progressives like the squad. Your response? Yes, so um, if not now is currently, uh, prior to October 7th, um, if not now's main focus was um, uh, around the campaign, around APAC, and making sure that the Jewish public in particular and the American public understand that these days APAC is, um, th those $100 million and the, the money that APAC is spending in these elections is primarily from far-right billionaires, um, and that APAC is functioning essentially as a way for um, these Republican billionaires to interfere in Democratic primaries. And in particular, around escalating um, uh, their, their spending or threats of spending against those calling for ceasefire, APAC has always been um, a, uh, determined to prevent um, any kind of conditionality on U.S. support for Israel, um, any human rights conditions in consi consistent with U.S. law, um, and any daylight between the U.S. and Israel. And now, in um, attempting to punish any of the lawmakers who are taking a moral and pragmatic stand um, in calling for ceasefire, they are demonstrating that um, even the genocidal and let's call it genocidal because it is rhetoric from, as you have on this on the show many times, um, rhetoric from the Israeli leaders in the government right now um, is not enough to warrant um, conditionality in U.S. support. Um, and frankly, I am also extremely terrified about the implications um, of uh, punishing politicians for not supporting um, again this assault um, on. Uh, this massacre in Gaza, because if we say if if APAC is determined to tell the American public that supporting an unfolding genocide, that, that speaking out to oppose unfolding genocide is beyond the pale in the realm of political acceptability, what is going to become of us, and what is going to happen to this world? Eva Bargort, I want to thank you so much for being with us, national spokesperson for If Not Now. 
uh, one of the organizers of Wednesday's protest at the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. Coming up, independent journalist Sharif Abdelkadus on the latest in Gaza and the West Bank and his new documentary on the Cop City protests in Atlanta. Stay with us. Palestine 100 Years by Diaspora Trio. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look at Israel's bombardment of Gaza, I want to turn to the words of the British Palestinian surgeon, Hassan Abusita, describing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. He'd been working in the Al-Ahli Arab Hospital, which was one of the last functioning hospitals in the Gaza Strip. There was a major airstrike, over 50 killed on a mosque, and Al-Ahli was completely inundated with uh, um, wounded. And we were operating all through the night, and by the early hours of yesterday morning, we had realized that we have basically run out of um, medication for the anesthetic machines and we had to stop the operating room. Um, we had finished. Uh, um, and that's when we made the decision. At the same time, in the early hours of the morning, there was heavy bombing all around the hospital and really close to the hospital. You could feel the whole building being shot. And we were being, and, and it sounded like tank fire, it didn't sound like air raids. Um, and so we made the decision that it was time for at least the operating room staff to be not going to be able to provide the service to evacuate. And so yesterday morning we left, um, and we could you could hear the sounds of the tanks around the hospital when we walked out. And we literally walked all the way to Nisarat camp in the central zone. When we left, there were over 500 wounded needing urgent medical care, but needing surgical intervention that we cannot provide because we'd run out of medication. We'd run out. The operating room could, would no, could no longer function. And at the best, there were two operating rooms in it. We were always overwhelmed with the number of wounded the British Palestinian surgeon Hassan Abusita speaking through his surgical mask in Gaza. Um, we've been trying to reach people there, but it's the second straight day of a telecommunications blackout. This is only the latest one. 
to talk more about Israel's bombardment of Gaza. We're joined now by independent journalist Sharif Dokadus, produced the award-winning documentary, The Killing of Shreen Abu Akhla, for Al Jazeera's documentary series, Fault Lines, and has reported from Gaza for Democracy Now! and other um, uh, outlets. Sharif, it's so important to uh, talk about what's happening there, even as this telecommunications blackout is happening. Also, the leaflets that are being dropped on Khan Yunus, which is where so many thousands of Palestinians have been instructed to go to head south from northern uh, Gaza south. Now leaflets are being dropped there. Uh, saying they must move further south. Can you respond to this overall situation? Well, I mean, you have a situation where uh, the northern part of Gaza, north of Wadi Gaza, and, and Gaza City itself, uh, which was home to nearly one million people, uh, is now a hollow shell. Um, most neighborhoods in Gaza City and in northern Gaza in general have been very badly damaged or destroyed. Uh, you have these armored columns of Israeli forces uh, going in and tearing up the roads. Uh, electricity, water, um, sewage infrastructure basically no longer exist. Um, and, you know, there are reports that the, 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 there's the smell of death is everywhere as, as an untold number of bodies are lying under the rubble. Um, the UN estimates that about 2,700 people, including 1,500 children, uh, are missing and believed to be buried under the ruins. And there's reports of the people that have remained in the north digging with their bare hands, uh, trying to find their family members. And the streets have been turned into graveyards. Um, so only a fraction of the people who lived in northern Gaza remain there. And most have been forcibly uh, displaced to the south in scenes that are reminiscent of the Nakba, 1.5 million people have been displaced um, in Gaza. That's nearly double the number that were ethnically cleansed in 1948 and were never allowed to return to their homes. And many of these people are people who were displaced in, uh, or their descendants from 1948. So we have to remember that 80% of Palestinians in Gaza are not from Gaza. Uh, they're refugees. Um, so most of the Palestinians in northern Gaza are now Packed into the south, uh, there's no indication if or ever they'll be able to return to the north. Uh, the Israeli military effectively controls m most of the, the northern area, and Gaza, northern Gaza, is basically uninhabitable now. You know, it's been destroyed, um, and there's hardly any aid coming in. Uh, you know, Gaza is now receiving only about 10% of its needed food supplies. Uh, dehydration, malnutrition are growing. Nearly all of the people uh, in Gaza, the 2.3 million people, uh, are uh, in need of food, according to the UN. Uh, and as you mentioned, the communication systems uh, are down now for a second day. And this is a more serious telecommunications blackout because it's the result of no fuel uh, to power uh, the internet and phone networks. So maybe a more permanent uh, communications blackout, and this communications blackout is actually causing disruptions to the little amount of cross-border aid deliveries that were coming in. Um, and as you mentioned, the Israeli forces now have dropped these leaflets uh, just the other day, telling Palestinians in areas east of Khan uh, Yunis, which is a, you know a bigger city in the south of Gaza, to evacuate. Where are these people supposed to go? 
Um, it increasingly seems that, uh, you know, Israel's trying to f push Palestinians uh, into Egypt, uh, which is a longstanding colonial fantasy. Um, and, you know, there, there are plans that have been documented uh, for this, that th there was a document leaked last month from Israel's intelligence minister uh, that detailed, you know, a durable post-war situation solution for Gaza, which includes the long-term transfer, uh, forcible transfer of Palestinians uh, to northern Sinai. Uh, there's something called the Island Plan, which is named after a retired uh, major general uh, who outlines a proposal to forcibly transfer Palestinians uh, to Sinai. But right now, yeah, we don't know what the situation is. Egypt has staunchly refused this kind of mass displacement of Palestinians into its territory. Um, and it has tried to negotiate uh, aid to come in. But there's increasing pressure right now on Egypt uh, because at the end of the day, this is an Egyptian border, the Rafah border crossing. It's the only border crossing into Gaza that is not controlled by Israel. Egypt right now is letting in maybe 50, maybe 80, maybe 100 trucks a day, just a fraction of the amount of aid that used to come into Gaza even before October 7th. And the reason it's only letting in a fraction is, is that it's uh, allowing Israel to dictate the terms. So it gets approval from Israel of how many trucks can enter the Rafah border crossing. Those trucks then enter, they go up to an Israeli border crossing where they're checked, they come back down and then enter into Gaza. And there's increasing pressure to on Egypt from civil society in Egypt, uh, from, from people around the world, for Egypt to just open the border and let the aid in. If Israel wants to bomb UN aid trucks, uh, then you know that, that's something else. But right now, Egypt is coordinating with Israel on how much aid gets in, and people are beginning to starve, and uh, infectious disease is spreading because of no water, and it's, a, it's an incredible crisis. Sharif, um, the number of journalists who've been killed um, I think Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 42 journalists and media workers have been killed since October 7th. It's the deadliest month for journalists since the group began collecting information in 1992. If you can talk about the global response, the global journalist response, and then we'll talk a bit about the latest on Shireen Abulakla, who was killed not in Gaza by the Israeli forces, but was killed last year um, outside the Jenin refugee camp. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, what can you say? Um, I don't know what the number is even now. I, you know, it's at least 35, maybe 40 Palestinian journalists have been killed in just over a month. Um, by far the highest number of journalists killed in such a short amount of time. Um, and, you know, journalists, uh, foreign journalists can't get into Gaza. Israel's not letting them in and nor is Egypt. So you have a situation where uh, you're killing most of the journalists, the registered journalists in Gaza. You're not letting other journalists in. And then um, we've seen very problematic coverage from uh, newsrooms, Western newsrooms, uh, of what's happening on the ground, problematic language. And people have been protesting this. And we just saw... Um, uh, you know, people have been resigning from the New York Times. The poetry editor of the New York Times just resigned uh, fr from there, uh, you know, because of the language used by the New York Times uh, in this coverage. But also, uh, you know, 
you haven't seen the, the type of outcry that one would imagine from the journalistic community for their colleagues who are being killed in Gaza. And the ones that aren't killed in Gaza have lost so much. They've lost their families. They've lost their homes. Um, when uh, Jamal Khashoggi was brutally murdered by the Saudi government, there was massive condemnation uh, from uh, Western news outlets uh, for the murder, and rightly so. When Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who remains in prison uh, in Russia, was arrested, uh, there has been and still remains remains a massive outcry over his arrest. But we haven't seen this the same kind of... Uh, outcry over this record number of journalists, that Palestinian journalists that have been killed in Gaza. I think it's, it's deeply, deeply problematic and reveals uh, a bias that, uh, that is, is being laid bare um, in many ways. And as you mentioned, Shirin Abu Akhle, you know, when this all kind of uh, the, the, the assault on Gaza began on October 7th, we saw people uh, post on, on Twitter, uh, on social media, kind of photos of Shirin and just saying that, kind of wishing that she was around, that she was, you know, alive to report because she was such an incredible journalist and so needed uh, in a time like this. Uh, you know, even the Lebanese journalist uh, who was killed uh, in shelling in in, uh, in southern Lebanon by Israel. Uh, one of his last tweets. Yeah, one of Assam uh, Abdullah. One of his last uh, tweets was. A photo of Shirin, and it just wrote Shirin uh, with a heart. And then after he was killed, someone put up his photo and said, I saw him with a heart. Uh, so, and yeah, Shireen, the latest uh, news about the Israeli army bulldozing the memorial for her where she was killed. Right. I mean, as we heard in headlines, you know, Israel has repeatedly uh, conducted very brutal raids on Janine, uh, on the Janine refugee camp, um, uh, which is uh, the heart of um, uh, militant Palestinian resistance in uh, the West Bank. Uh, we've seen uh, drone strikes uh, on Janine um, just a few days ago. A drone strike killed about uh, 14 Palestinians in Janine, one of the deadliest days in the West Bank since 2005. Um, and we saw drone strikes just the other day as well and raids on the hospital. Uh, and during one of these uh, raids, uh, they came in. The site where Shirin was shot by an Israeli sniper has become uh, a memorial area. When I went there last year to report on her killing, there's there's photos of her everywhere. There's flowers. Uh, there's um, uh, written pieces of tribute uh, that are all hung up. You, the, the tree where she was killed under, you can still see uh, the bullet holes. And... Um, it's a place where family and friends have sought some solace by visiting this area and remembering Shirin. And uh, an Israeli bulldozer came in during one of these raids and completely destroyed uh, this road and this area uh, where this memorial was. And it doesn't seem... Not, it doesn't. It seems to just be some kind of vindictive act because there was no reason to destroy this road that that leads to the entrance uh, of the Janine refugee camp. Um, they've also, you know, in an earlier raids, they 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 destroyed this um, memorial, which was in the shape of a horse, which was kind of well known in Janine in a main roundabout, and was built from the pieces of an ambulance that was uh, blown up uh, in an airstrike by Israel in 2002. And it was, they used the parts of the destroyed ambulance to to 
kind of create this horse uh, monument, which was a testament to Janine's spirit of resistance. They also came in and kind of removed that. Uh, so there seems to be also an, an attack on uh, symbols of resistance to to Israel uh, as well. Well, Sharif, um, we're going to ask you to stay with us. We're going to switch gears. Sharif Abelkadus is a journalist who won the George Polk Award for the documentary The Killing of Shireen Abu Akleh for Al Jazeera's Fault Line series. After the break, Sharif will stay with us and we'll be joined by another guest to talk about his new documentary and all the latest developments around Cop City in Atlanta. Back in 20 seconds. to Who by Andre 3000. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today's show in Atlanta, Georgia, where people from around the country joined in a week of action to stop the massive $90 million police training complex known as Cop City. Well, they're throwing tear gas into the crowd. Um, On Monday, police attacked peaceful protesters with tear gas, pepper balls, flashbang grenades as over 400 marched toward the sacred Wilani Forest, the proposed site for Cop City. Participants included the parents of the environmental defender Manuel Esteban Terán, known as Tortuguita, who was fatally shot by Georgia state troopers during a raid on the Stop Cop City protest encampment in January. This comes as activists have been organizing for a citywide referendum on the project, which officials have tied up in court. Meanwhile, 61 people facing RICO or racketeering and domestic terrorism charges appeared in court this month as the state tries to characterize them as militant anarchists. Al Jazeera's Fault Lines recently covered all of this in their report, Now You're a Terrorist, Atlanta's Cop City Crackdown. Sharif Abdelkadus spoke to environmental activist Sarah Wazalewski, one of the dozens charged with domestic terrorism for protesting Cop City. She described the January morning when Georgia law enforcement officers violently raided their protest encampment when state troopers shot and killed Tortuguita. So I was sleeping in a hammock with my partner at the time. We woke up around like eight, maybe quarter till eight in the morning. Sarah Wasileski had traveled from Pittsburgh to Atlanta and joined the protest for the weekend. So we were just laying in bed talking and then all of a sudden we heard and saw just like 15 or so police in full military like combat gear like with ar-15s just like coming through the woods directly at us we were waiting to be put into a transport vehicle and that's when i heard gunshots 
I screamed when I heard it. And the police officer that like had me also responded like, oh, like they knew something bad happened. While Sarah was being arrested, a team of officers killed Tortuguita in a barrage of gunfire. Truth Adelkadus also spoke to indigenous forest defender Victor Puertas in a video call inside ISIS Stewart Detention Center in Lumpkin, Georgia, where Puertas was held for over seven months since his arrest. After being released on bond from DeKalb County Jail, Puertas was immediately taken into custody by ICE. After weeks of negotiations with the detention center, we were able to speak to Victor by video call. Hello. Hi, Victor. This is the first time he's spoken to the media since his arrest. It feels like you're, you're living a completely parallel life, you know? Like, your life is stopped the moment that you got arrested, and now you have to make meaning of all this, you know? And why is this movement so important to you, Victor? I care about the land, I care about the people, I care about life, I care about the water, you know? I, I, I deeply care about those things. I grew up in that way. I was raised in that way. So what do you think it does to a movement when the state labels it as a violent extremist organization and then charges its participants, like you, with domestic terrorism? You know, you don't believe it first, you know, and then you realize, yeah, actually they're like passing these kind of laws, you know, to target certain groups of people. What's happening here in, in Georgia, in Atlanta, it will have a repercussion all over the country. For more, we're joined by two guests. Sharif Abdelkadus is still with us, correspondent for this Al Jazeera Fault Lines report. And Kamal Franklin is joining us, founder of the organization Community Movement Builders, who's been part of the now two-year movement to stop Cop City. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Uh, Kamal, for the latest news of this week, over 60 people in court, uh, many of them charged with domestic terrorism. Can you talk about the significance of what this means? Um, As we heard this woman say, domestic terrorism and how it affects their whole lives. Yes, thanks for having me. I mean, this this issue goes to the heart of the militarization of the police and the criminalization of movements. What we're witnessing in Atlanta is a rebirth of the COINTELPRO movement to stamp out organizers and activists, to scare people into not speaking up and participating in movements. You have people who came to Atlanta who previously were not involved in any cop city activity, but who happened to get rounded up by police. Uh, and the police looked at IDs, and if they had Georgia IDs, they let them go. If they had out-of-state IDs, they arrested them and charged them with domestic terrorism and later added on the charge of RICO. So you have people whose lives have been turned upside down, people who've been engaged in acts, some people who've been engaged in acts of simple civil disobedience by sitting in tents, by sitting in tree huts, who now, again, have domestic terrorism charges and RICO charges. And so as you stated, and as, you, as the documentary was saying, people's lives have been turned upside down because of the state's attempt to criminalize and brutalize activists and organizers who are working against police violence in our city. Can you talk about the range of opposition? I mean, it's not just one group. It's people who are deeply concerned about police brutality. It's also religious leaders, indigenous leaders. Talk about the area where it's being built. Yeah, one of the things about this movement has been since the very beginning, it's been vast in its outreach. Everything from community organizers like myself, environmentalists, uh, religious leaders, uh, voting rights activists, 
uh, yes, including anarchists, other people uh, who are community members who've been engaged in this because they see two things happening. One is the what we spoke about a couple of seconds ago is the continued over policing of black and brown communities that will be happening if Cop City is built. Two is the, the, the attack against movements, which is the very reason why this vast militarized facility is even being proposed. And then three is the environmental degradation of the Walani force, which is gonna be ripped apart. Over 300 acres have been rented at $10 a year. 90 acres have already been cut down. Um, this forest has been promised to a working class adjacent black community for use of park space, for camping space, for, for trails, walking trails. All of those plans were ripped away as soon as they decided to put Cop City in. It's already caused environmental degradation in the neighborhood, and that will continue to happen as they go forth with their plans to try to build Cop City. And what about the referendum? What's happened to it, an Atlanta-wide referendum so people could decide? The city of Atlanta, along with the, the clerk's office, the mayor's office, the city council, have basically sat on this referendum. Uh, they've done nothing to move this forward, even though the organizers who did this, we collected over 116,000 signatures. The city council and the clerk's office could have started verifying these signatures as soon as we turned them in, but they decided to halt that process and to not do it. Further, the city council on its own could put a referendum on the ballot without even considering the signatures. And again, they have failed the city of Atlanta. They failed the people in Atlanta by allowing the people to decide. People, again, over 116,000 signatures of people saying that they want to vote on this, they want a voice on this, but the city has ignored it because it prefers to do backroom deals with corporations and with the Atlanta Police Foundation and with the police themselves and the state government. You have here a, a, a right-wing, white Republican uh, state apparatus teaming up with a so-called liberal, moderate, uh, Democratic black mayor apparatus. And the things that they agree upon most is how to protect cops and capitalism. And that's what's happening right now. Uh, and a referendum is being put on ice so that they can't be voted upon by the people in Atlanta. Sharif, you spoke to Belkis Turan, the mother of the forest defender Manuela Esteban Paez Turan, known as Tortuguita, who was killed by Georgia police in January. Uh, Belkis traveled to Georgia from Panama, where she lives. And we can just play a short clip. I really don't believe anything what they say. I think they are lying. And there is nothing new. Everybody knows that police lie. The county medical examiner didn't find any gunshot residue on Tortuguita's hands. And an independent autopsy suggests that Tortuguita was shot while seated with hands raised. Manuel really was pacifist. He disliked the police very much, but not to kill anybody or to try to kill anybody. Manuel's life and message is to save the world, to save the green areas, to take care of the oceans. Sharif, um, one of the first people we hear in your Fault Lines documentary, Now You're a Terrorist, is the mother of Tortuguita, uh, Belkis Teran. Uh, 
your overall take from covering issues all over the world, from going down to Atlanta and seeing what um, people were confronting here and now what they're being charged with. I mean, that's not to say Tortuguita, who was killed. Right. Well, I think what's important to note about the movement to stop Cop City and defend the Atlanta forest is its resilience. Um, you know, it's brought together, as you mentioned, abolitionists, uh, environmentalists, indigenous rights leaders, religious leaders, a multifaceted resistance movement uh, against this massive plant police training center. That's, and the movement's lasted well over two years now. It's still going, despite this um, uh, massive amount of state repression against it. And what we try and document in the, in the documentary is um, that many of these, there's, there's a crackdown on, on, on even lawful political activities. And lawyers say this is unprecedented, uh, that it's basically criminalizing uh, political association. The indictment where 61 people are charged in this wide-ranging racketeering case, the ACLU uh, called the theory in the indictment shocking and unprecedented. Um, and it basically relies on people's beliefs and community organizing uh, as the basis for the sweeping criminal liability. And just finally, as we're talking internationally too, there were you know there's protests by the Stop Cop City movements in support of Palestine as well, and against what's called the Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange or Gilly, where uh, law enforcement officers from Atlanta, from across the state and the U.S. travel to Israel to receive training from Israeli uh, police forces, um, and uh, you know Israel's long taken these strategies and techniques that are honed on the Palestinian body and then exported them abroad, and so we see these ties. Uh, uh, between, uh, between Israel and uh, police forces in Atlanta. Shurifad uh, Al-Kadus, he is the reporter on Now You're a Terrorist, the Fault Lines documentary. You can watch it online. And Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders. Okay. Oh, my. Blaze the Violet Fire, everyone. This is, you might say, the most intense of times. Mm. And uh, mm. the star gets enacted with the simultaneous de- declaration of world peace. Let's remember that mm. as we do a four-minute meditation often as we can each day. Um so, inequality undermines health. Oh, we got, yes, Richard L. Richard uh, Wolf. All right, let's just start that. 33 minutes. Wow, time went fast. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. As usual, I want to begin by thanking you for the comments, suggestions, uh, for material we can cover and so on that you have been sending in to our volunteer, Charlie Fabian, 
And I want to give you again his email if any of you have so suggestions of that sort. Charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Charlie.info438 at gmail.com. In today's program, we're covering many topics. A little bit about the United Auto Workers, successful strikes and contracts uh, at the auto companies of this country. A talk about the national realtors and a slap across their face and wrists that they got last week. A strike in Bangladesh and how it affects all of us. More on the competition between the United States and China and a remarkable vote in the United Nations. And that's all before we get to the second half where we interview Professor Stephen Bezruchka about the healthcare system here in the United States. So let's jump right in. The United Auto Workers, I don't have to tell you because we've covered it and many others have, achieved really remarkable gains by going out on a brilliantly executed series of strikes against Ford, General Motors, and the parent of Chrysler, the Stellantis company, and winning stunning contracts, 25, 30, 35% increases and more, particularly for the lower paid workers, thereby making good on the commitment of the labor movement to equalize, to make for more genuine equality in a society that talks about it, but rarely does very much about it. But I wanna talk about one particular dimension, as a contribution perhaps others could have and should have made, but I didn't hear or see very often. Basically what the United Order Workers achieved was clawing back much of what they lost over the last 10 years. This in no way diminishes their achievement. Many, many other unions are unable to do that, and they did it, and that's stunning. But if you put together what they lost from rising interest rates, what they lost these, I'm talking about the the auto workers, what they lost from the inflation, what they lost from the givebacks that they agreed to in 2008 and nine with the crash then that took General Motors over the edge, as we all know. Well, they've gotten much of that back and that's an enormous achievement, but it is one that is frightening the auto companies and many other leading capitalists here in the United States, because they're fearful that what the United Auto Workers did will embolden that union and others to seek to do likewise, to do better, to actually advance the economic condition of their workers, not only claw back what was taken from them. And so they're going to be looking, and I wanna say this, to my brothers and sisters in the auto workers union, the the companies are gonna be looking for ways to claw back what they just had to give to that brilliantly executed set of strikes. And you know how they're gonna do it? By undermining the ability of the unions and workers to stay afloat. Here's some of the ways. They're gonna continue the inflation because the inflation eats away at whatever gains workers get by jacking up the prices to nullify the effect of getting more money in your paycheck at the end of the week, by keeping interest rates high, which eat into 
your income and your disposable income by making you pay more for your auto loan, for your college loan, for your mortgage, for your credit cards, and all the rest. By high immigration, which brings in people who are able and willing to work for less than you have won with your strikes, and so offer a cheaper option to your employer who you can bet will take advantage of it, especially because if you have an undocumented immigrant, you can rip that kind of person off because they're afraid to go to the police. All of these and other measures will be pressured onto Republican and Democratic legislators alike and be sure they're going to look for ways to serve their business leader patrons. The union movement always has to watch out for that. The last couple of weeks were also bad news for the National Association of Realtors, the people who are the brokers between buyers and sellers of homes and businesses uh, across the United States. A court in the state of Missouri came down with a powerful judgment. It basically said that realtors have cornered the market, have behaved like monopolists. They've created a kind of unspoken agreement across the United States to basically collude with one another by demanding a uniform 6% commission on every kind of transaction that they broker. If you've bought a home and recently you've known that the agent who served you and the seller told you, if they were honest, about the 6% on top of the sale price of the home that you had to pay. The Missouri court said that's a restraint of trade. That is an interference in the market. It favors the realtor, but it hurts the people negotiating the buying and selling of property. And they find, it comes the punchline, they find realtors, the ones that were involved in that case, $1.78 billion in penalties. And you can be sure realtors in every corner of the United States are now trying to figure out how to fight this, how to appeal this, how to blunt this, how to weaken it, every conceivable way, because it threatens their income. Okay, what's going on here is important to understand. Capitalism is a system based on profits, you know that. And as many have tried to say, one of the great things about capitalism, it gives an incentive to make profits. If you profit, you'll be more successful as a business. If you make profits, you'll have more money to use to grow your business. If you make profits, you'll have more money to pay yourself as the owner of the business, etc. And that lovely story has its truth, but it omits something which is equally true. That profit is an incentive for all kinds of bad behavior too. Profit is the incentive to substitute a cheap and dangerous material in the building being constructed, a cheap and dangerous material in the food we eat, in the clothes we wear, in the transportation we use, causing us injury, death, 
Profit is an incentive for all kinds of behavior. Mm. Profit was the incentive of realtors to get together and create that minimum 6% to demand of everybody who buys and sells a home. And that's what the Missouri court was challenging. But I don't want folks to miss the message. Capitalism has always had the profit system, that's part of it, and the incentive that comes from being profitable. And that has led to as many illegal acts as legal ones, to as many dangerous, destructive acts as positive, growing acts. And this is what the lesson is of what the court there decided. But since capitalism is that way, it's always producing bad results, food that is unsafe to eat, drinks that are unsafe to drink, clothes unsafe to wear, cars unsafe to drive, and all the rest. And that's why we have regulations in the United States. That's why people have always turned to the government, do something because the profit incentive is making my children sick from the milk they're drinking or the meat that they're eating or all the other things I've just listed. And so what has business done? Fought against regulation at every turn because then they can't do the profit incentive that they want to do. They want the freedom to do all of that and we not be in a position to regulate it. So they evade regulation, block regulation, and once regulation is put in, they do a campaign that never stops about how regulations aren't so good either, we should go back to unregulated. Well, we wanna go back to rubbing sticks together to make a fire, be my guest. I wanna turn next to faraway place that has very local implications. The country of Bangladesh, uh, the eastern half of what was once Pakistan, before all of that broke apart into two countries, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Bangladesh was on in the news in recent weeks because of strikes of the millions of garment workers. Bangladesh is one of the great producers of clothing in the world. And who was on strike? The workers who make the clothing. Who do they make the clothing for? Here's where we come in. Walmart, Gap, Target, Zara, and many more of the mass clothing stores in this country are selling you and me clothing made in Bangladesh. What is the minimum wage of a clothing worker now? Ready? $75 per month. Let me do that again, $75 per month. Why are they on strike? They want an increase in the minimum wage to $208 per month. That's right, dirt cheap, way cheaper than you can get an American worker uh, to produce clothing, which is why we are so dependent on clothing from these countries. Those workers want a decent life. And those workers are telling us something. And they're threatening us, even though they don't mean to. They're telling us that it's not sustainable in the modern world of telecommunications, radio, television, where we all know what's going on in the world, for some people to be living at $75 a month 
making the clothing for the rich people in the world, or at least richer than them. This inequality, the suffering that it bespeaks, the miserable housing and schooling that those people over there have to endure is not sustainable. It builds up levels of anger and rage that you can see exploding in the world around us. It's not smart for us to do that. And there's no excuse for Walmart or the others telling us how profitable it is to make clothes that are cheap and overcharge us for them. Okay, China. China produces rubber gloves and we use them here in the United States in medical offices across the country. Once upon a time, Malaysia produced the rubber gloves that we use. Americans, here we go again, are too expensive as workers and so the companies go elsewhere or import the gloves. Every country, United States and China and Malaysia, use a mixture of government help, low taxes, subsidies, regulations of one kind or another, together with the profit incentive. It's just that China plays the game better than many other countries, which is why our rubber gloves come from China. The last economic update I have time for today is a recent vote in the United Nations that teaches us a lesson. The vote was about ending the U.S. embargo against Cuba that prohibits Cuba from getting from the United States all manner of goods and selling. Here was the vote. 187 countries to end the embargo. They voted to end it. Two countries voted to continue it, the United States and Israel. One country abstained, Ukraine. Notice, Ukraine, Israel, the United States, completely isolated in the world. Be very careful, my friends. That kind of isolation is a sign of where the world is going. We ignore it at our peril. We've come to the end of the first half. Please stay with us. I think you'll think uh, you'll find the interview with Professor and Dr. Stephen Bezrucha very interesting. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. It is with great pleasure that I bring to our cameras and our microphones Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. Uh, Dr. Bezruchka teaches in the School of Public Health at the University of Washington in Seattle. He worked as an emergency physician for 30 years and also set up a teaching hospital in a remote district in Nepal. His studies now focus on what produces health in a population and why the United States has worse health outcomes than some 50 other countries, despite spending almost half of the world's total health care bill. He published this year, 2023, a book entitled Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. So first of all, Stephen Bezruchka, Dr. Bezruchka, welcome to our show and thank you very much for sharing some of your insights with us. It's a great okay. pleasure to be here. Here's a question that has come at us, I don't know, for the last two to three years, at least once every other week. And it goes something like this. The United States health system being the health system of one of the richest countries on the planet, 
seems to have done really poorly in dealing with COVID. And everybody wants to know why, given the number of people who died, the number of people who got ill, the number of people suffering long COVID and all of that. Was it the president, Mr. Trump, at the time? Was it the government that had the bad, wrong policy? Or was it part of an older and larger problem of poor health in the United States? What does your research suggest is the explanation for the poor performance of the United States? So let's begin by uh, looking at the term you used, U.S. health system. That implies that there's some structure in the country designed to produce health. Now, health is different than health care. So I tell my students every time, when you use the word health, do you really mean health care? So we should be speaking about the U.S. health care system. And was it responsible for our uh, shameful COVID outcomes? And that, and that just um, word change makes you realize we conflate the terms health and health care in this country all the time. Just think, we pay for health, access health, get health, insure health. We do nothing of the kind. We pay for health care, insure health care, get health care. So I always ask uh, the question, do you want health or health care? Because most people can't distinguish the two. Mm-hmm. So then we have to ask, how much does health care do for improving health? Um, what, what is the evidence there? And the evidence is very strong that at best, in terms of averting death, healthcare accounts for at most 10% of the, of the uh, ability to avert death. And, uh, you know, since we spend, well, uh, in 2021, $4.2 trillion on healthcare, a sixth of our total economy, um, and, you know, that, and which ends up being about half of the world's health care bill, we're consuming health care, and there's no reason that should provide uh, health, 10% at best. So what about the COVID outcomes? Well, there's a lot. There are many studies uh, linking COVID outcomes to economic inequality. Among the U.S. states, in a study in 2020, death rates were higher in the states that had higher income inequality. Among 84 countries, the same relationship was seen. There's something about inequality that uh, produces conditions that lead to worse health. And that's uh, you know the reason for the title of my book. Inequality kills us all. The kills us all says, implies there's none of us that can escape the toxic effects of inequality. Yeah, it sort of, it reminds me, because historically there's a mountain of evidence of that. That's why we know about, you know, great plagues and great other moments of of collapsed health in the world because it affected everybody. If you let the poorer part of your people be sick, have bad health, you can't prevent the spread of that. There is no effective way really to do that. 
So it becomes self-destructive even for the rich to allow poverty because it will come back to bite them in the proverbial rear end. Okay, tell us a little bit more, if you will, because you've studied this. How would you summarize the link between inequality and the health of a population? So inequality forces us to make comparisons with others. That is, um, most of us have some sense of our income or wealth or assets, and we are constantly being forced. There's an active process here to make comparisons with others. This is especially apparent on social media, which, uh, you know, people are always representing themselves as uh, better than they actually are. And so, so people see this and then they compare themselves and that creates stress. And stress is really the, I call it the 21st century tobacco. Americans don't smoke very much anymore. And, uh, and stress has replaced uh, personal behaviors such as uh, smoking cigarettes as really the toxic force. Now, stress is, is there for a purpose. We have a stress response. You know, if, uh, if suddenly the room I'm sitting in, you know, I'm in Seattle, so we're facing the big earthquake. You know, if suddenly the room started to rattle, which I was here in 1980 when we had a small earthquake, you know, I get out of the building really quick. And what would, I wouldn't even have to think about it. There's a whole system programmed in your body to automatically do everything you can to get you out of trouble. Well, that saves your life. But turn it on uh, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're uh, seeing how so many, how uh, how rich some people are, when you're waiting for, for the check uh, to come in the mail, or uh, you're waiting for what the parole officer is going to say to your son. This happens all the time. You can't sort of run out of the building, so to speak, to save your life and then not be so stressed. Yes, and I never heard that before. That's wonderful. So the, my guess is many people smoked in the 20th century to deal with stress, and now you take away the smoking because it could kill them, and they're left with the stress, which it turns out can also kill them. And, you know... If you don't go to the basic conditions of life that cause much of the stress, not the kind of an earthquake, which we all have to deal with uh, more or less equally, it is remarkable that there isn't more of an acceptance of the need to do something about social inequality, given that it has such a clear relationship to the health that we all as human beings seek to to have it's it's just remarkable can you say a little more about the link between stress and health so that we can we can pinpoint better because as an economist i'm fascinated i can show how the economy stresses people out in our economic system i'm doing that half of every program is really that so you're kind of doing the other half saying okay if this economic system stresses people out, you've got the information to say what the impact of that stress will be on the health we're all trying to, to achieve. 
So let's take a uh, an example um, of how economic differences or class differences uh, produce different amounts of stress that are visually apparent. And that is uh, studies have been done on air rage in passenger airplanes. So passenger airplanes, uh, some are have no first class seating. They're, you know, small planes not going too far. But most big planes have a first class and uh, coach class. Now, if you're on a jumbo jet and you enter the plane through the first class cabin, there's more air rage in first class. Those people who paid more money for those seats are very privileged, and they don't like to see us walking through there. If the entry is behind the first class cabin, as on jumbo jets, then there's less air rage in first class, but there's air rage all throughout the plane. And and what do I mean by air rage? Well, belligerent behavior, trying to smoke in the laboratory. Uh, you know, I, I've you know, in my years of flying, I've, I've observed people having physical confrontations even uh, in the plane. So the first studies appeared in 2016, showing that the presence of a of a seating difference in the plane produced more air rage than when there wasn't. And when you entered through the first class cabin, that was even worse for first class and for everybody else than entering behind. During the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, although flights were down, air rage increased tremendously. Similarly with road rage, you know, when, (laughs) I mean, we can take this a lot further, But stress produces biological changes in in the body. And the uh, the more stress you are under, the more these biological changes, like uh, there's a a chronic stress hormone, cortisol. And the higher your levels of cortisol, the more stress you've been under. And uh, for example, you can take, Cortisol is deposited in the growing hair shaft. So you can take somebody's hair and section it in centimeter segments and measure it for cortisol levels. And, and for example, a study looking at men aged 50 to 59 admitted to the hospital with a heart attack or some other condition, they had their hair um, sectioned and assayed for cortisol. And the men who had the heart attack for the previous uh, few months were having increasing levels of cortisol. And then boom, uh, the, uh, you know, a clot blocked off an artery and they got a heart attack. So that's an example of how the more stress we're under, the more sickness or, you know, bad things can happen. The science behind behind this is remarkably strong. Yeah, and it's equally easy to show that the poorer you are, the more the moments of your day, your week, your life are subject to all kinds of stresses and that what wealthy people often do is buy their way out of the stressful situation, whether it be buying the better seat on the train or the plane or buying the, the, the car. 
I remember the last time I took an economy flight being crunched up like a sardine in a can, obviously less likely to absorb the uh, effects of the people around me. So poorer people suffer more from stress, and you can look at biomarkers, C-reactive protein being a common one that's measured clinically when you go see a doctor, and poorer people have higher levels of CRP, this uh, marker of, uh, of inflammation. You know, stress produces more of inflammatory processes. You know, I could go into the biology of that, and the studies show that that's true. Now, just to come back to the thing, you know, people don't smoke much in this country. The people who do smoke are poor, and they, you know, they don't have this, they don't have the vacation islands to escape to, so they're the ones who light up the cigarettes, hoping for some stress relief. Dr. Bezrushka, I wish we had more time. We don't. We're out of time. But I think you've made a wonderful case, not only that we suffer from a health system that leaves a lot to be desired, but our underlying economy creates the problems for health that make an inadequate health system all the more of a problem we ought to have addressed. I hope you'll come back again in the future. I know my audience is entranced by all this information and what it means. And I want to say goodbye to you, but also to the audience. As usual, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Here we go. Tonight is an author, an Emmy-winning journalist who hosts the Rachel Maddow Show. Please welcome Rachel Maddow. too long. I always enjoy talking to you. As I have said many times before, you are the preeminent person in the news media who can come on and lay out a problem or a news story like parts on the lawn and just put it back together for everybody so they understand not just what's happened, but what the source of that moment is. And right now, you, 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 you may have seen, like we talked about the monologue tonight, that there are clear signs that uh, Donald Trump and his people are at least fascist curious, you know? Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's just yes. a whiff of leather boot in there. <laughs> and and you, got, you got this new book that uh, I uh, am really enjoying called Prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism. Okay. Um, well-timed. I was just going to say, I did not mean it to be this well-timed. I feel like we have been in this moment where there is an ascendant anti-democratic movement in our politics. And it can be very flummoxing and very concerning. For me, it actually helps to know that Americans before us faced something just as bad or worse and did very well against it. And is the hopeful nature of this book, yes. which, which I want to get into in just a moment. But first, I want to ask you about what's been happening recently on, on Veterans Day. On Veterans Day speech, Trump called the left vermin and fascists. And you know what you would think about fascism in this book. Why do you think he's leaning into these 
comparisons. Yeah, I think it's important that it very clearly wasn't an ad lib. This wasn't something that uh, he riffed on. It was seemed to have been in his teleprompter. It was a hundred minutes into the speech, and uh, he, after the speech, then posted it with the same language on True, whatever his online yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and so this means that this is not a slip of the tongue. This is something that he's doing deliberately. And if, like, if you know one thing about fascist dictators of yore, you know that they call the people they want to eliminate. Vermin, right? You know, you know that dehumanizing language is the yes. thing. It's like the cartoon language of, of fascism. And so I think that he's deliberately doing that. And so Trump did that at the same time that we've had these leaks, kind of official leaks from his campaign that he wants to build camps for millions of people, um, that he wants professional to, camps, though. Professional looking. I like the yes, no yeah, crocs exactly. element. It's, it's just, it just classes it up a lot. Yeah. But camps. For millions of people in Americans, he also wants to invoke something called the Insurrection Act, which will allow him to use U.S. military force against American civilians at home. And he says he's going to invoke that on day one, which would give him from that day forward the ability to use the army against us at home. Um, so doing, floating all of those things at once and calling his opponents vermin, he's deliberately inviting the criticism that he is behaving like a Hitler or Mussolini style fascist. Figure. Well, he, he must think that that's a good thing for him and his campaign. And my my question to you is, from what you've learned about studying fascist movements and fascist movements in America, is given that fascism is essentially an attractively lazy political tool. Why do you think it has so many people on the right in America right now interested in it? Well, I think that he's inviting us to call him a fascist and he's doing these things so that... I so mean, I just played into his hand is what you're saying? Well, I am too. I mean, you can't ignore it, right? You don't have a choice. He is yanking our chain. He does want to be talked about in these terms. But it's also, it's important that you pointed out that he, in that speech, also called his critics fascists. He wants fascists just to become a random political epithet, just an insult that everybody uses that means nothing. In the same way that he took fake, fake news was the thing. But then he decided all news is fake news. And that fake news is just this term that means nothing. Well, because there can be no uh, authority other than the authoritarian. And so no one can label him with anything, including something as accurate as fascist. So that all that meaning has to be undermined. That's George yes. Orwell talks about. There, there can be no meaning to anything other than what the state says the meaning is. That's exactly right. So okay. he's sapping those words of their meaning. So we can't criticize him by calling him a fascist because he says everything's fascist. And there's also the, the, the ongoing thing on the, the modern Republican Party, which is every accusation is a confession. No puppet, no puppet, you're a puppet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes, this is, this is the way he works. But this is, he's part of a, it's not just about him. He's trying to build an anti-democratic movement in this country where people want a strong man um, to hold power by force rather than for us to use elections. And it is mean, appealing because yeah. it, you know, it's simple. Yeah. Just do what the strong man says. I alone can fix it. Yeah. We need to talk our fellow Americans out of that as an idea without paying any attention to him. Now, today, today in the Senate, there was actual threat of violence in the Senate today. Um, how does that make you feel about the state of our democracy? Uh, no, I, uh, I feel like this is one of those things where it's obviously hilarious because it's so stupid. Yes. Um, like that guy just absolutely, you see him try to take off his ring? Sure, sure. I was like, he wouldn't want to hurt the other guy. Uh, exactly, he wouldn't 
want to dip your ring? I mean, what is he talking about? It's so stupid and hilarious and also super scary and bad. And that's our lives now. That's the Venn diagram where we live right in the middle of super stupid and really bad. Um, because, I mean, the thing that's bad is that one of the things you watch for in a democracy in danger is for violence to start encroaching on the political space. People doing normal political things, going to a hearing, being a poll worker, certifying an election result, those people are intimidated or threatened with violence or actually subjected to violence. When that starts happening, it means normal people get out of politics and it becomes a place for brawlers and for people to take power by force. That's one of the big warning signs. And for these guys to be playing with it literally inside the Senate is so stupid and also so bad. And almost made Bernie bring the hammer down, you know? Yeah. Bring that little old Vermont vengeance down on these two guys. I gotta say. His friends Ben and Jerry. <laughs> okay. We have to take a quick break, uh, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more. Rachel Maddow, everybody. Hold on, everybody. We're just going to jump forward here. Going to go a little bit over the time tonight, but that's okay. It'll be okay. All right, hold on here. Let's go places. <laughs> hey everybody, we're back with the author of Prequel, an American Fighting Against Fascism, Rachel Maddow, at the, in the January 6th uh, case, which will be in Washington, D.C., the uh, Trump team is lobbying for there to be cameras allowed in the courtroom, why do you think that would be beneficial, or why do you think that they think that would be a benefit to him? I think he likes being on TV, and so I mean, you see that uh, just sure. the civil trial. He, the, the one where Don Jr. just testified, yeah. he doesn't have to be there for that trial. It's a civil trial. There's no criminal charges. You don't have to be in the courtroom. But he's been there every day, and every time he, every time there's a break, he walks out of the courtroom and looks for a camera. Right. It's like because like even his rallies aren't getting this kind of coverage they used to get. But everyone's going to cover him in court. Because it seems like a dramatic confrontation and right. a moment of accountability for him. And so I think that's probably just it. Listen, I think there's a public interest in having cameras in the courtroom. And, um, what, NBC, what, is the, what is that public interest? Because I know that NBC is lobbying for that to happen. Yeah, NBC is one of the entities that's asking the court to do it. And the prosecutors are saying, no, they don't want it. And Trump is saying, yes, he does. So it's interesting in terms of how the court is going to decide. And it'll be the judge. Do you often agree with Donald Trump on legal matters? <laughs> This is, this is a real one. Okay. Yeah, this makes me... I would love it because I have footage yeah. to run to make fun of him. <laughs> but, that, but that is a selfish endeavor on my behalf. I don't think it would be better for the Republic necessary. But, but I, I think the other thing you'd have is the, the footage showing due process. Showing about how the showing how the legal process works. So even in the cases that he's involved in now, like the civil case, he's saying, "Oh, the judge is a monster, and the judge's clerk is terrible, and it's also unfair, and it's all this." Stuff. Well, if we could see what was going on with the camera while it was happening, we would know whether or not that was BS, or whether or not he was actually being treated by the legal treated fairly by the legal system. And so, transparency for court cases as serious and important as this. I think there's a there's a good case for it, even if he does want it. Now the um, in, in in the book here, uh, prequel, uh, an American fight against fascism. Uh, as you said, as you intimated before, is that we've been through this before and possibly worse. 
What was America's flirtation with fascism before this? When did we sort of dodge this bullet? The one that I write about in the book is just in the lead up to World War II. So by 1940, like 83% of the public didn't want us to join World War II. And for most people, that was just, you know, we just had World War I. We don't want to get involved in another war in Europe. But for some significant portion of Americans, they thought, well, if we are going to get involved in World War II, let's fight on the German side. Um, there was because, because Hitler has the right idea and fascism is the wave of the future. 1941, the best-selling book in America was written by Charles Lindbergh's wife. Ah. And it was a book about the beauty and promise of fascism. Ah. The good news there is that by 1943, two years later, the best-selling book in the country was written by a guy who infiltrated all the pro-Nazi groups in America and spilled all the tea on all of them um, and exposed them all and showed how terrible they were and that they were all getting Nazi support. So, I mean, the country went, really went through it. It was a huge, a huge part of the news about what was going on in our country in the lead up to World War II. And we've forgotten it because then we fought World War II and that's a, that's a more comfortable story to tell. But there were a lot of Americans here, some who were working for the Nazis, but a lot of whom wanted fascism on our side. Um, you, you ran MSNBC's coverage of the last Republican debate. And I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> it's, it's a tough gig because you're talking to people who are supposedly competing to be the nominee for the Republican Party to be the next president of the United States. And yet the person who's actually beating them by 30, 40, 50, depending on the state, points is not there. Yeah. And who, other than Chris Christie, though not as much as you would expect, are not throwing any punches at the guy. Is it that all these 91 knives at their disposal there from his, you know, his indictments? Yeah. And they don't use them. What do you think is happening with those folks? Those folks, I think, all know that what they are competing for is the silver medal. That they're really, they're fighting each other to come in second in the Republican presidential primary. There is no second prize. You don't get anything with Unless he goes to jail. And then maybe they're the last man standing. And so maybe you want to end up not totally antagonizing the people in the Republican Party who like Donald Trump so you can absorb his votes when it's something when he gets struck by lightning. I don't know. But it's it is sad to see them not trying to win, not trying to knock Trump out other than Chris Christie, um, really just trying to draft in his wake. That's why those that's that's why covering those debates feels like a wake. Right, yeah. and you're talking to eight dead people. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not nice. It's not. A, it's not a nice. That's the only reason I don't do it. <laughs> they keep asking. We have to take a little break, but when we come back, more Rachel, everybody, don't go nowhere. Hold on, everyone. Here we go. Jump off to the future here. Hey everybody, we're here with the author of Prequel, An American Fight Against Fascism, Rachel Maddow. Mike Johnson, we just found out minutes before you walked out here, uh, a, new, a new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has passed uh, the funding bill. And uh, with help from Democrats, it went like this. It went 336 to 95, uh, 93 Republicans against it, two Democrats against it. Now, this is the kind of deal that lost Kevin McCarthy his job. All but two Democrats in support of the Republican bill. 
Right. I think just the idea of there being a continuing government was what they were voting for, is my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think he's going to pay a price from this? What do, you, what do you know about his position as opposed to Kevin McCarthy's? Because this is the kind of bill that sank Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. What, is, what, is, what would I do to you? <laughs> I, I, I'm sure Mr. Johnson is very smart and <laughs> capable and knows exactly what he's doing. But he got this job because the previous guy was driven out with pitchforks and torches for having had the temerity to speak to political opponents rather than just wishing them dead. And now he needs his political opponents in order to keep his, his job. Like, I just, we all know how this ends. Um, this is not a party that is trying to govern. Um, and we're, we're faced with this larger project right now in our politics, which is that one side under the Republican Party's leader is trying to say, you know, my political opponents don't deserve to live. I shouldn't be subject to elections. I should just have power and rule and use the government to crush my enemies and get revenge. And the Democrats are like, we'd like to tackle about white rail and some foreign balance, foreign policy perspectives on attacking. You know, like Democrats are still treating this like it is a governing project. And it is really the two parties are doing two very different things. And so now we are going to keep the government open. It is because the Democrats came to the rescue and said that we should. But this is the Republican Party still not even wanting to keep the government going because they don't believe that governance is what we need in this country. They believe we want a strongman form of government under a guy who just says what what he wants and it happens. And the stakes are really high right now and it's just depressing to see what's happening in Congress. Rachel, last question. How do we get out of this mess? I mean, the the big picture answer um, is if you are trying to defend democracy, you only have one arrow in your quiver. You only have one weapon, and that is democracy. You cannot fight an anti-democratic movement with anti-democratic means. You have to treat your fellow Americans like human beings. You have to fight against scapegoating and toxic conspiracy theories that are trying to make you think that your fellow Americans are not worthy of participating in a democracy with you. You need to beat people at the poll at the polling place, and you need to make sure that the public knows the truth about this stuff. You need activism and journalism, and you need to not be scared of people who are trying to use violence to intimidate us out of this process. It's just it's small d democratic commitment. And we need it more than we've ever needed it this year. Thank you so much. Thank you. Her new book, Prequel, is out now. Rachel Maddow, everybody. We'll be right back with a performance by Tracy Okay, we're going to play a song at the end, so it'll take us about five minutes over time, but here we go. Just about there. Um. She is nominated for Best New Artist at the 2024 Grammy Awards, performing I Know It Won't Work from her album Good Riddance. Gracie Abrams.
We're going into the spirit of this time now, and we're going to be doing what Rachel was talking about. We're going to learn how to work with the, with the, with the tool of democracy to be democratic and have a democracy uh, or not. And yes, we can until we see you this afternoon. And Rachel, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Rainbird. Yeah, to, to, to pull that one off. And so, whoops, you have the final word, Rainbird. I pass the talking stick to you. All right, I'll take the talking stick. <laughs> and yeah, good night. I'll see you this afternoon. Thank you for tonight. And I pass the talking stick back to you, sweetheart. Oh, thank you. Until we meet again this afternoon, as Rainbird made us realize. See you this afternoon. Namaste. Aloha.